Hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Committee, session number 158. Uh, I spy with my little eye is what we called it. And why did we do that? Well, it should only be called that, uh, titled that, because we want to look at things that are kind of under the veil still, where people haven't looked yet, and where if you take a closer look, find another part of the puzzle. Uh, at the moment, other things are going on which we will be able to communicate about soon and where things take place. Beyond that, we are delayed a little bit and I beg your pardon for that. We had an organizational shortcoming uh, which I take responsibility for. I'm sorry for that, but uh, we are now ready to go and we have our interpreters back so later on when we have English guests that will be interpreted in German and uh, we will carry on with that in the future as well. So times are times where things seem to settle now and ravel and unravel and are put back together again. So I wanted to make a remark if somebody it participates in that NACO, the national cohort. Um, I uh, wrote an email to the members uh, of my petition at the time. Professor Gedant has pointed out that people have been, I think this has been going on for 20, 30 years already, a national study, I think they call it health study now, it's got a new name. Um, they wanted to move back away from the name cohort, but still abbreviated NACO in German. And um, these are people that are being observed for many, many years medically, their health, so they would be very good test persons um, in the corona crisis. And <clears throat> I took my starting point in questioning all of this with a position, do a baseline study, we need uh, reliable COVID data. And I talked to Professor Antes at the time, and at the time we didn't address this because that would have been a group which one would have only need to test for the catching of the disease and that would have been it. Otherwise it's very difficult to find uh, people for a study like this and this is why uh, I didn't manage to do that on my own behalf at the time. Of course I would have done this with scientists coming along so it's not as easy to do as it may seem but here this would have been an unbiased group and uh, some of the participants from that study um, approached me. Uh, two, three people uh, seem to be registered there and they said that the thing is that uh, um, they were, they could volunteer whether they want to come and um, subject themselves to more um, examinations, but they would have had to wear a mask, and so they didn't want to do that, and that brought a bias into the group already. So uh, people who can't wear a mask or didn't want to wear a mask, they would have been excluded from that uh, study. 
and they are possibly also the ones who are unvaccinated. So uh, it's interesting to see that this kind of bias would introduce into that group and uh, I will see if I can get some follow-up information on that. So beyond that, I would uh, we have prepared a little video while we're waiting for our first guest. We have Wolfgang, you wanted to say something? Well, maybe I can comment on this uh, general scientific situation of the science community as we have had this major uh, effect on health, not only in this uh, cohort, and we have studies going on f to the introduction of drugs. It they all have this bias, and if people don't make sure and check whether the people are vaccinated or not, the bias is there. Then you really have to uh, expect uh, different reactions to uh, certain issues or to your tests because the immune system is uh, maybe harmed, uh, the whole setup of the body is altered, and if you differentiate even between vaccinated and unvaccinated, as we don't know what's in the uh, vaccines, uh, and that varies, and we're not told. I just uh, recall that uh, there were plasmids, complete DNA in there. Nobody knows, and 30% were contaminated of the uh, of the jabs, and uh, that, of course, has an effect on the outcome of studies. And so there is a fuzzy edge um, uh, with things that you can't assign to a specific part of the group. So I do have my doubts whether in this times where billions of people got the jabs without us knowing the content, content if they'd had their content, uh, they have a strong effect on different organs. So you can't do clinical studies at all, I think. I think at the moment it's a massive bias by the jab and we can't compare it. If two got the jab, you don't know whether they even got the same jab. So uh, we are in a situation where I would like to hearn uh, and um, Professor Antes and Professor Jonidas, but maybe we'll get that. But I think at the moment you simply can't do clinical studies that are clean and not biased and that don't have an error rate. That is a fundamental question. I uh, thought about this and wondered on how you can address this. If you know, even if you know who got which batch, we don't know how they affect. We have no idea what consequences this may have. And then all these things are added, whether it was jabbed into the muscles, whether it was local, and how it spread in the body. All these things need to be added. So this is uh, very, very uncertain, and there was a lot of variables introduced, unknown variables introduced into the system here, and uh, there are going to be uh, problems with future studies, and that will affect the result of clinical studies. And of course, we have to look uh, who got the jab, who got one, who got two, three, all of that has to be registered in all studies. And then the question is, we saw that this is not being done. Many studies have been published on this topic of COVID and spikes, effect of spikes 
post-COVID uh, or long COVID as they call it, uh, there's been a ton of studies and loads of money uh, spent on these <coughs> and uh, that's going on, that's being published now and even there it wasn't asked whether the people got the jabs or not and not which one and how often. So what's what happened there is all completely chaotic and it's going to be very difficult and I think the results are going to be worth it. I think we would have to have a break as far as the uh, studies are concerned. Maybe that's good. Usually we don't need these new drugs that they want to sell to us because at the moment the pharma market is uh, that they can sell anything to us because nobody takes a close look. Well, that is quite shocking news, isn't it? I have not looked at it in this way, what you've just said. Well, I'm the first one to raise this topic, <laughs> to be to be honest. I've never read this anywhere, and I haven't heard anybody uh, of the science, uh, critical, the evidence-based uh, doctors, uh, uh, I haven't heard anybody talk about this as yet. I don't know why whether they don't think about it or they don't want to think about it, but this is such a severe effect on everything that is health-related that uh, you have to keep this in the back of your mind at all times. Well, normally if you do a clinical study, do you know whether people have to say whether they got some vaccinations if they traveled abroad or something? Well you have exclusion criteria who is allowed to take place a part in a study and so if some medic some drug is relevant and a job often is then these uh, patients can be excluded <coughs> and then you will only uh, compare people who didn't get an injection and of course that is a pre-selection as well and I don't know how um, the result, how valuable, how valuable the result will be. You, that depends on what you want to look at and what results you are looking for. Um, but uh, people who take part in these uh, studies probably wouldn't take too many drugs. But that's speculation. I think it's difficult to get people uh, to be uh, test persons. I personally wouldn't do that, definitely. You never know what's the content. And so actually, you uh, would have to do this with unvaccinated only. Or if you say, well, we want to see <coughs> the interference um, uh, that it can have with vaccinated people, uh, we want to test that, then you should extremely, you should select extremely clearly and it'd be difficult to get the respective groups together in the first place. Well, you don't only need statistics if you do the concept for a study to uh, create it error-free. You have to get people who know what they're talking about, what factors could take an effect and what could um, have uh, impair the results. You need statistics uh, to see how many test people you need to get a, an answer in the first place and then you have to have somebody that you uh, who tells you whom you should exclude from your study and with with these jabs that people got now one two three there's many many who have effects in many places on the body 
and uh, that is very difficult in um, many different areas and that will take a negative effect. People who have more virus infects now because they got the jabs who are weakened somehow, all these things should be considered but they can't be considered because you never know whether they really got the jab and what was inside it, what was the content. That's the uh, that's a blind spot. So the whether the content is the same all the time and we know it is not. So there seem to be big differences although it uh, has the same label. Anyway, okay, so that has uh, taken us a bit off the path, but I think it's very important that we drill down into the details of this. Maybe we should uh, uh, send out an official uh, inquiry. Who I don't know whom to. Well, uh, Antes, Goethe, Ioannidis, they would be the ones who we could ask. Good. Okay. So I see our first guest is with us and uh, we switch to English. Toby Green, ich höre, dass Sie bei uns sind. Thank you very much for welcoming me and thank you for switching uh, from German to English. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. It's great that you're here. And um, you are a professor for African um, history and culture. And we would like to talk to you um, about the the influence or the impact of uh, Corona and especially also the mandates, the measures, and the whole turmoil that came after the the lockdowns or with the lockdowns. Um, what's that? What that has done to the um, to people in in like the poorer uh, parts mm -hmm. of of uh, the Earth, the planet. Maybe could you um, introduce yourself and give us a little bit more details about your background. Thank you. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, uh, everybody, or good evening, good morning, wherever you are listening from. Uh, I'm, a, as you say, I'm a professor of African uh, of African history and, and culture at King's College in London. Um, in fact, uh, I'm I've, I'm a historian, effectively, of inequality. Uh, so my previous book, prior to the coronavirus pandemic, which was published in 2019, was called A Fistful of Shells. West Africa from the rise of the slave trade to the age of revolution. And it looked at effectively an understanding of the economic inequality which arose between uh, that part of Africa and the rest of uh, particularly the Western hemisphere in the, in the era of the transatlantic slave trade. But it didn't look at it so much in the lens of slavery. It looked at it more through the lens of economy, currency, capital and rising economic imbalances. So I'm a historian of inequality. So. Uh, and, you know, some people have said in the work I've done on the pandemic, well, you know, you're not a scientist. Uh, what's that got to do with what have you, what is your expertise got to do with this? But I would argue that um, being a historian of inequality, as we see day by day, is an extremely relevant field of expertise. Uh, and um, that's effectively the lens through which uh, I began my, my work on the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, when uh, it began in uh, when the lockdowns began in March 2020, I uh, I, I've been working, I should say, to 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 those who are watching or listening. Um, I've been working for well, 15, 20 years with colleagues across a variety of different countries in Africa. So I've, I've personally conducted uh, fieldwork research in uh, nine or ten different countries across the continent. Uh, I've done a lot of different uh, research projects uh, with the, with the university in different and many different countries in Africa, from Angola and Mozambique to Guinea-Bissau, 
Ghana, uh, Sierra Leone, Gambia, you know, it's a long list. And uh, so I was in, I'm regularly in contact with uh, colleagues in, in, in many different countries on the continent and um, rapidly became extremely concerned uh, as to the impact of uh, the restrictions, uh, particularly because there were clearly restrictions which simply um, cannot address the nature of social and economic life from a health perspective, actually. So in, if you're talking about a, a, con a continent where, for example, in Accra in Ghana, the capital of Ghana, 50% of families occupy one room, uh, according to uh, recent research, uh, confining people inside in curfews is actually likely to have a counterproductive uh, impact in terms of just if we're looking at this, you know, the impact of this in terms of spread of a virus, because of course, it, we, uh, it, it as a virus, which was more dangerous to people in an indoor environment, this was actually a completely crazy policy, a very unscientific policy. And actually, when we look at what has happened, you know, we look on Africa, for example, the country with the, uh, the strictest lockdown measures, uh, well, probably South Africa alongside Rwanda were the two countries in Africa with the strictest lockdown measures, and uh, South Africa has far and away the highest uh, COVID death rates on the African continent. And in fact, you see the similar pattern, for example, in Peru, which also is an extremely poor country in, in the Latin American context, had the, you know some the strictest lockdown measures by many accounts, by uh, many measures in 2020, and also has the world's highest death rate from COVID. So in fact, the evidence is quite clear that in environments where people will often be multifamily occupancy and very cramped accommodation, uh, confining people to, to, to small accommodation is actually extremely dangerous scientifically unproven unvalidated policy actually counterproductive and that the evidence shows that in fact um so in that to cut a long story short then when when, when the pandemic began uh, i was very concerned about the socioeconomic dimensions the fact that this was already i was being told very quickly meaning people were eating once a day uh older people were going without food in order so that children could eat uh within six months i was being told by friends you know that all the young people had left they were all trying to get to europe because there was no food uh, and and this these kind of measures, you know, extremely alarming to me. So that was that those were effectively the main motivating factors behind the work I began to do, um, starting in around September, October 2020. I researched and wrote a short book. Well, it was quite a short book, the first edition, the COVID Consensus: The New Politics of Global Inequality, which I researched and in October, November, December 2020 was published in April 2021, and then I continued since then to do a lot of work around the coronavirus pandemic, uh, interviewing colleagues in Africa on podcasts for Collateral Global, uh, writing a number of articles for a whole range of publications, uh, including uh, African Arguments, which is the uh, blog of the Royal African Society, uh, Prospect Magazine, uh, Unheard, all fundamentally mostly around uh, the theme of uh, the massive impact this has had on inequality and the relationship between uh poverty and health outcomes in, in the global south um and that led to the second edition of the book on covid which i co-authored with the, the italian uh, this anglo-italian writer Thomas Fazzi. so that's a sort of summary of the work i've done the expertise i brought to it and how my own engagement has developed mm -hmm. and uh, are you uh, familiar with the uh, the so the pcr test that was mm -hmm. um is basically the the tool to identify that we're really dealing with um, Corona, yeah. COVID-19, whatever. So uh, how do you think, uh, do you have any information how that was distributed in Africa and poorer countries? 
Well, I think this is an extremely important point, but not actually for that reason. So testing, so one of the things we mentioned in the second edition of the COVID consensus is that uh, mass testing had a disastrous effect in Africa, but not for the reasons that most people might think. It had a disastrous effect because the companies which made malaria rapid tests uh, rapidly diverse, uh, effectively stopped making malaria rapid tests and diversified into making coronavirus rapid tests. And in fact, uh, so there was evidence published in the BMJ Global Health uh, by the sum by you know July 2020 was talking about a real problem of shortage of uh, malaria rapid tests developing because of that. And in fact, at a conference uh, which I uh, helped to convene a month or so ago here at King's College in London, um, which was called The Impacts of COVID Restrictions in Low and Middle Income Countries, we had a senior doctor from Nigeria who attended who said that, 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 that there still is a problem with the shortage of rapid tests, who's a specialist in malaria, in fact. So, you know, this, this is actually a devastating, disastrous impact of uh, the regime of mass testing, let alone, you know, I mean, talking about, you know, so some of the um, interviews that I have done with colleagues, you know, I mean, all of this, all of these measures, you know, were completely nonsensical in an African context, you know, um, staying at home well, I've already discussed that but you know masks so in an economic context so I interviewed a colleague from the around 30 or 40 dollars a month so you know I mean all of these policies were just you know it was complete theatre which had absolutely no meaning to most people's lives so that of course has the consequence when we reflect on it that a lot of the uh, policies, the more extreme policies of the, you know, of the COVID consensus, as we call it in our book, uh, could only have worked in a, in a context of rich countries. You know, as I've said, you know, actually locking people down, confining people in poor countries, in fact, is probably going to increase COVID spread rather than anything else. Uh, and it's certainly, you know, it's completely unsustainable on any economic or social level, which means that the, the, fact, the idea of zero COVID would only be possible uh, with complete global segregation between rich and poor countries. So it's so it's actually one of the most regressive policies that you could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And with the lack of, of testing for malaria and maybe other typical um, diseases there, do you think there could have also been a confusion with like the symptoms, uh, whatever, you know, that you... That well, you... I'm not sure. Uh, yes, I mean, I think that's certainly the case. Um, fever is obviously a, a symptom of malaria, uh, especially uh, where the disease is endemic and, 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 and most people, once they reach beyond, you know, into beyond the age, uh, don't get it all that badly. They generally run a sort of fever, a bit like a flu. Uh, and so, yes, I think, uh, and in fact, I, I heard anecdotally from people who did say that, yes, uh, sometimes um, anti-malarial treatments were given to them when eventually it turned out they had tested positive for COVID. Uh, so, yeah, they, that, that issue did... Um, did take place, did take shape. And of course, uh, and, and in fact, there is evidence of that as well, that in fact, a lot of doctors did try and treat COVID with uh, normal antimalarial drugs on the African continent. We mentioned that in our book, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence of shortage of quinine, for example, in Kenya. Uh, and, and, and there's anecdotal evidence of that, though, of course, um, for various reasons, you know, public health ministries have not formalized that. Mm -hmm. So uh, may, I, may, I have a, may I have some uh, question? I was in Africa very often, and I met many colleagues. I was in health facilities and was observing how, how the treatment went and with malaria and with other diseases. So um, uh, the flu is not such a big problem normally in, in Africa as in colder countries. Yeah. But um, nevertheless, it exists. 
and the viruses, they go around the world each year. And yeah. those people in Ghana and in Accra and in other towns who live crammed in one room with a whole big family, mm-hmm. each year they experience this situation when the virus comes. All viruses mm-hmm. come to this family. They have, a, and you know, this. we have similar situations with teachers in Germany and in England when they are very close contact each year with children. Yeah. Or people who are who are educating children, young children who all get their flu, all have their snotty nose and all have their yeah. viruses and coughing. And so those people, they have the best immune system. They are trained the best mm-hmm. and they have such a good resistance. You can never reach it with a vaccination. So what those people, so the incidence of diseases, of serious diseases and of flu among among people who are who used to live crammed together mm-hmm. is lower than among those people who have their big room, who have a chauffeur, who go, don't go with, with the bus every day to work, who are isolated all the time. They are very, if they get, if they catch some virus, they are much more at risk. Well, that's, a the question, old that's a very interesting. That's so very... I think what you, what you told us, this this uh, this exposition of those people in poor countries, it it is uh, contradictory with the experience of people who are experienced in in infectiology infectiology with with respiratory virus. Sorry, it doesn't make sense what you said. No, I, I think I, I if you can if I could continue actually, I, I, what I would say is in fact I think that. I agree with you, in fact, uh, in that um, I wasn't trying to say that COVID was necessarily a bad disease for people in that context. I was more talking about the way in which the disease would spread and and, and the uh, um, and the concept of a zero COVID or somehow suppressing COVID and how that wouldn't work in that context. In fact, what you say is very interesting because um, I've interviewed a number of colleagues, uh, well, a colleague from Nigeria, a colleague from Mozambique, uh, who described COVID in their context is known as effectively a rich person's disease. This is known in Nigeria, in Mozambique, as a disease of the middle class. Uh, And whether, of course, you know, I'm not, you know, I haven't done the tests, I can't verify that statement, but that is that is the way in which it is known in in those contexts. And that would tend to confirm what you say, that actually, you know, in in that context, COVID might spread around very quickly, but it's going to be very mild, you know, in that context. Yeah. Whereas if you are in a sort of wealthier environment, it might not be so mild. I was I was in a working group with Helmintolog with the, the worm specialist. Well, you know, children have worms everywhere, and, and people have worms in Africa. Many children have have worms when they are young, and uh, so they those countries where the children are, are infected or have many parasites, many contact with parasites, you almost find no autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. The immune system works so well that doesn't it, the immune system in our countries where we have big civilization where everything is hygiene and proper, we've, we have much more autoimmune diseases that our immune system is getting crazy when something comes or is reacting, doesn't react, right. coordinate. Yes, but and and we are we envy those people who who from the beginning who live in the dirt because of their immune system. We don't envy their poor existence that they don't have to eat and all these other dangers. But the immune system is rather good, well trained, mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think when you have, when you want to make a, when you want to find out something, relations or cause, or you have, or the, the cause, you have found the cause of the reason for, for something happening, you have to be careful not to, to, to be trapped by those biases that, that coming from the immune system. So this is only why, why I said it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes sense. And it's not that, you know, you know, there's a whole range of reasons as well, why in terms of death statistics and, and the statistics around COVID, which means that, of course, we know that they're not entirely reliable anyway. So how, but yeah, I, I think that, thank you for that point, uh, Dr. Boga, that's important. So could it be um, just a question, like, I mean, in a, in a poor country, when you have all these people, like, now piling up in this one room that they basically cannot leave, yeah? I mean, this is by itself a, um, a horrible situation, you know? It's like a lot yeah. of uh, stress yeah. also, and... and uh, violence, 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 Can I give just one example of that? Yes, yeah, so I interviewed a colleague in Angola, uh, a social scientist who works in, in gender studies, and, you know, she, in Angola, children were not children were not allowed to leave their homes for seven months. Now, so if we can imagine what that might mean in a in a in a context like Angola, where you know there's huge numbers of people are lacking in very basic amenities, electricity, running water, and so on, and and as you said, Dr. Vodak, you know the the impact that will have on domestic violence. And in fact, when I interviewed this colleague, she 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 discussed yes that, that there was clear connection yeah. between that and an increase in domestic violence and abuse. So, yeah, and that's just one example, you know, another very good example, I'm afraid, is Uganda, Uganda. But, but those those sectors, those when you cram the people, when you when you forbid them to go out and when you when you when you prison them at home, I think this is a very big stress, psychological stress, soci sociological stress. And there will be many, many, many uh, consequences for health of that. But it's yeah. not the infection, but it's other things that are dangerous then. And there may, may be lots of damage then, yes. Of course. And, and there's, of course, and there's also a political dimension of this, which is, you know, the, you know, some countries, uh, you know, a country like Angola, which has an authoritarian political regime, uh, or another very good example with the Philippines, where in fact children weren't allowed out for 19 months, you know, with an authoritarian political regime. Uh, it's much more likely that people are going to, in some way, uh, respect those decrees uh, because the consequences, uh, obviously, uh, uh, can be severe. Uh, and there was actually a very famous case in Angola of a doctor who was returning from a hospital uh, and he was stopped by police because he wasn't wearing a mask inside his car and he was found dead the next morning in the police station. So, you know, and this was reported in Bloomberg. That was in 2020. So, you know, there were, I think there's an important political dimension to, to what the impact of these rules these laws may be in different contexts well that's intense and um but so was there a lot of um in in some parts of africa for instance are there were there uh, states countries where they where they simply simply just didn't care where they didn't obey these didn't stick to these rules because whatever they thought okay what the government says up there we we don't care because they lie anyway or something like that or do you it's a, it's a very diverse picture actually really really different across the board so uh, at this conference i mentioned which happened about a month ago you know we had a representative who came from guinea bissau who said that you know really after the first couple of months where people did more or less uh, obey the rule laws but find ways around it after that everything just went back to normal uh, but then you have a context like angola where as i said it was a, a very different situation uh, and and Senegal uh, had had a second cycle of lockdowns in the in the early months of 2021, as as Northern Europe did. Uh, in general, I would say that the picture is of countries which have a closer 
political relationship to Western powers tended to at least follow, at least formally follow the Western model. So countries like Senegal, like Kenya, like South Africa did tend to follow that lockdown restrictions model, whereas a country like Sierra Leone, for example, was very uh, limited to that. Uh, Guinea-Bissau I've mentioned. And then the other well-known example is Tanzania, which again at that time with its president John Magafuli was was not um, was was not really particularly aligned with the West with, with Western aims. Mm -hmm. And when these lockdowns started, these lockdowns um, was it in Africa or in the countries that you've observed um, was it also the same like in in Nepal? We had a, an entrepreneur from Nepal like very early on, like in the beginning, like of when we started the our sessions, and he said that the lockdown, they the, it started although there was no um, corona death. At, mm. at that time. So basically nothing was just like uh, precautionary, so to say. And it would, was that the same? I mean, we also in Germany, we had very, very, very few, um, you know, official Corona deaths. Um, people, yeah, people I mean, it was the same. Came. I mean, really, literally, I mean, uh, so some of the interviews I've done, the colleague I mentioned from Angola, for example, uh, she was describing how, yes, uh, these laws were rolled out across the country. So in rural areas, Uh, food security was destroyed and there was no not a single case of COVID anywhere around there. Uh, uh, my oldest friend on the African continent who I've known for over 30 years now in Senegal told me the same stories from uh, from, 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 from southern Senegal and, and when I interviewed him for Collateral Global uh, well well over a year later you know even then you know he, he's, he, had, he knew of one person in the entire department where he lives uh, who had died of COVID. So I mean, these would literally, you know, you know, when you compare it to the impact of other endemic diseases, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. And uh, that's what everybody I've interviewed has said. So how has the, how has, has, have the restrictions shaped the countries? Is there something you could say? How has it this affected the economic yeah, situation? I think fundamentally, I, I, I did write an article about this from her at the beginning of the year. Um, about Africa's new age of austerity. I mean, you know, we, as, a, as somebody who's worked on inequality and economic history, I, I particularly feel this keenly. If you look at the 2010s, if you read the major news outlets in the West, you would have seen Africa as a continent of promise. You know, this was the era of Africa rising. It was the burgeoning middle class. It was going to be a future economic powerhouse. And now if you look at those same journals, they'll tell you that Africa has got a massive debt crisis, huge debt mountain, that the era of austerity has come. And, you know, and, what's, and, and, and there's a clear connection between the impact of uh, the policies that, have taken, that, that began in 2020 and this scenario three years later. And it's got to be remembered. And, and something I pointed out in the article is that, you know, this is being portrayed uh, by liberal economists as, um, as, an out, as an outcome of being over committed, you know, over leveraged on debt. But of course, you know, from an, as an economist or an economic historian, I would say, well, no, debt is something you take out on the basis of future earnings. It's actually something that you usually take out on the basis of, of credit. And it's actually testament to the fact that the 2010s were an era of uh, optimism and growth, uh, economic growth in Africa, that, that those future loans were taken out on the basis of continuing growth and productivity and and you know the complete hemorrhaging of global supply chains uh and and the impact that has on it has had on the african continent is is there to be seen and in and and of course the impact of that is going to be massive in terms of 
future ill health and, and reduce life expectancy. I've also written an article about this for Prospect. Um, we know for 40 years, social scientists have talked about the relationship between GDP and life expectancy. It's called the Prescott curve, uh, which shows that in, in countries with low GDP, a small increase, a very small increase in GDP will have a quite a big increase impact on life expectancy, increasing it. Whereas once you get to a certain level of GDP, increasing GDP doesn't have much impact on life expectancy. Well, of course, the same is the, the reverse is also true. If you reduced GDP, which happened across the board in uh, Africa in 2020, um, then you will massively impact life expectancies. And that's what um, we're going to see in the next 10 years. And in fact, Oxfam produced a report in October last year showing that um, over half of low income countries have actually reduced health spending since the start of the pandemic. So that's an indicator of that. And the one exception in 2020 to this rule was Tanzania. Tanzania's GDP grew by estimates to range between two and a half and four and a half percent. So uh, we can see what the consequences of following the rules or not following the rules has been for people. And, and we can and, and, you know, there's clear evidence based on decades of research what the impacts of that will be on future health. And was it that uh, the the economic uh, damage was that mostly done to say like small rural activities? Say you have like a, a local market, farmers market, and these people couldn't sell their things anymore. You know these small businesses, or was this basically also maybe the the um, some um, you know whatever businesses that were more um, exporting to the West, uh, delivering stuff, you know, so and did it affect those or like is there... It's, it's, it's at all levels that? in fact. So mm -hmm. I mean the first thing to know is the International Labour Organization in 2019 estimated that 85% of the economy in Africa is in the informal sector. So, um, so these are sectors where, you know, an idea of some kind of work from home or uh, state furloughs simply inapplicable. It requires people getting out of the house to go and work it, and almost always requires movement of some kind. So, for example, um, my old friend in Senegal, who I mentioned, you know, so his job prior to uh, the pandemic was he had a moped. He used to ride two or three hours to the coast, buy fish and then return with it. So that's a, a typical example. You know, so it almost always requires movement. So if you stop movement, Uh, you absolutely just take a sledgehammer. And, and of course, people have very limited savings. Uh, they had to spend it almost all. Uh, so what it's meant is the inf informal economy, uh, still in many countries, depends on the country a bit, um, but still in many countries has, has struggled to, to, to recover. And uh, so that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect is um, uh, remittances. So the remitt remittances constitute about half of uh, external inward investment to Africa. Uh, and the impact on the service sector in particular in, in uh, richer countries had, had, a, had a noted impact on remittances uh, into, into um, the African economy. And then, and finally, uh, there's the, uh, you know, there is also uh, the question of inflation. So I think one of the other impacts of, of all of this was, I mentioned the loss of harvest in Angola. A colleague in Ghana described a similar uh, thing happening there, actually, that um, May, maize harvests were lost, that meant that the price rose almost straight away. So he said he was talking to a friend who had a chicken farm in uh, the summer of 2021. So almost you know, nine months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is deemed in most of the media discourse to be responsible for inflation. And he said inflation had already doubled by that time. And in fact, there are a number of articles in our book. We mentioned an article uh, published by Reuters from around July 2021, which talked already about 
you know, inflation prices having doubled already in that year in many contexts around the world, low income countries. So, you know, that's, you know, also obviously had a, a major in, impact on the kinds of socioeconomic health indicators which I've been discussing. So, and, and just on a practical level, so all these people that are now cramped in, into these apartments, they're all stuck in there and and then the the prices go up and they cannot sell anything they cannot do this like this fish uh, transport business anymore um how did they survive well i mean I, I, so as i say it, it this went on for several months and it and it was a crisis i think you know anybody who, you know who talked to will, will, will agree with that uh, it was a real crisis you know real hunger was uh, experienced by a lot of people you know there were very and so for example um an example from ghana Uh, so, uh, you know, the government did um, bring in, um, uh, you know, try to hand out rations of food and this kind of thing. But of course, all it meant was, of course, instead of, you know, keeping people apart, which was the theory of lockdowns, people crammed together to uh, to try and access that. I mean, it was the most, in, you know, unbelievable uh, collapse of, of any kind of uh, integration of uh, an understanding of society and an understanding of health. Uh, and that's that's one example. So, you, you know, people did what they could, but a lot of people went very hungry. That's a, that's a fact. A lot of people went very hungry. Uh, and then in, in some countries uh, when, um, you know, as I say, it varied from country to country. In Guinea-Bissau, for example, as I mentioned, you know, pretty quickly once that had passed, you, you know, by July, all those things opened up and they never went back to that. Other countries, as I mentioned, did go back to that in some form in the early months of 2021. But of course, the, the key issue was that by that time, you know, all, any savings which people had 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 been spent uh, and, and there, people were left to deal with the impacts of inflation, which has gathered ever since. And the, the PCR testing, to come back to that, was there a lot of PCR testing? Who paid for these tests? Because if the people are poor, how can they even pay you for these tests? You know something about the, the, um, the service, the health service, whether it was overloaded, whether there was something that... The need of the people? Or did you have, did, they, did you also hear that Because of the lockdown, people didn't go to the doctor. Because in yeah. Germany, we had a, a, a much much lower frequency of, of visits, uh, and nobody went to the doctor because of lockdown. And this is also is something which may be dangerous. But is there some observation in in Africa? Did anybody uh, count the visits? That's very. That's a very good question. Um, yes, I mean, I think that's one of the curious things. You know, obviously the imp You know the 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 structure of the impacts are quite similar. So yes, indeed, exactly that kind of thing did happen, you know, partly because I think to start with, people were genuinely terrified of COVID because of all the stuff which was going around. They genuinely were. It, uh, and, you know, I, I, for example, an Angolan doctor wrote an article for Collateral Global in which he described exactly this. Um, a man called Raul Blasquez Dolideira uh, described how, yes, people did stop going to seek basic medical care Uh, but that also, um, what also happened was people was, were scared of going to, if they did have COVID, people were scared of going to the hospital because the, the hospital was, 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 in a, was in a quarantine site, it was miles away from anywhere, and it was, had apparently terrible conditions. So there was a whole bunch of things going on in, in, in that context. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, and then the, and the other major thing, as I mentioned, was the kind of 
another example would be vaccination, routine vaccinations. So in Mozambique, for example, a colleague I interviewed about a year ago, still then, uh, all, he described all routine childhood vaccinations as being, uh, un, you know, stopped and they haven't restarted um, because the medical, all the medical infrastructure was directed towards COVID. Uh, the, the budget, the, the, the vaccination budgets were directed towards COVID vaccinations. Uh, and uh, and so the vaccination pro the, the routine childhood vaccination programs hadn't restarted around about a year ago in Mozambique. So you know this the kind of disruption of kind of and then I've mentioned already um, the impact of sort of routine tests for things like malaria. So uh, the generalised impact of all of these things, plus as I've also mentioned before, you know the the, the actual reduction in health spending in low income countries, you know, is, has certainly had a major impact. You know, and it is as I say it struck. Fundamentally, just as in Western countries, the, the biggest killers, cancer and heart disease, were kind of ignored. I think you can say it's like the same thing actually happens, in, you know, in context of, in African context as well. And um, I had a question, but I think we had a, a sound problem, so maybe you didn't hear it. I wanted to know uh, again, like coming back to the PCR test issue, which interests me. Like, um, was there a lot of mass testing, and how who paid for these tests? Because, like, I mean, do you know, like here they were actually rather expensive, and I don't know if they were also expensive in in uh, the African countries. And like, how could people afford to pay for these um, tests, or were they all subsidized by the government? and now that government is already the state is broke i think it depended very much on the country so i mean a, an interesting example might be rwanda so rwanda op operated a, a, a very it has a very authoritarian government and operate a very authoritarian policy but it was very much a, i think a common feature is that the testing masking vaccination regime uh was effectively for the middle classes and they, you know if, if you wanted to travel if you wanted to go into a shopping mall in Kenya, for example, uh, if, if you, you know, if, and, and for example, a lot of, you know, where vaccine mandates existed in Africa tended to be based around people with public jobs of some kind. If you were a university teacher, uh, if you were working in, you know, quite high level, you know, uh, oil company or something, you needed to have your, so it, it, these effectively were, as far as my understanding at least. And so the PCR testing, would be connected to that, um, you know, in terms of most people, you know, in terms of the, the vast majority of the population's daily lives, you know, that that wouldn't, as, as far as I understand it, and there may be some exceptions to that, which I don't know, but as far as I understand, even in Rwanda, for example, I don't think that that was a major issue unless you were involved in some way in what you might call the public sphere. And what's the attitude of the people toward the whole restrictions now? Do they... Um... Do they think it was necessary or are there a lot of, you know, critical questions? Um, I guess there's not much going on with regards to restrictions at the moment or is there? No, I mean, there's no restrictions now. Uh, I don't think in, in any country that I know of. Um, I think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, I would say that rather as in much of the Western formal media's public sphere, there is very discussion, that's my understanding. Uh, you know, there are critical voices which have been raised in some countries by by some people uh, but in the broader public sphere and, and that's of course partly because I think you know the, the, the impact of austerity and the massive impacts this is all having on daily life now means that you know in a way that's a you know just that's kind of a discussion is, is, a, is, a, is a, in a way a luxury the lobby will just don't have 
Um, so I think, but, you know, certainly I, I haven't spoken, I don't think, I, I could say that I don't think I've spoken to anybody on the continent who really thinks that all of this was a sensible or proportionate response. Um, that may be because of the people I've spoken to, I don't know. I mean, I think you will find probably, I'm sure, in a, in a formal setting, but everybody will agree, uh, however, that the, the, the impact on future, on young people and, and on day, daily life ha has been extremely negative. Uh, and I think most people would agree that the virus wasn't nearly as, um, as bad as people, you know, as all the media said it was going to be, particularly in Africa. They said it was going to be particularly bad in Africa because of the, of the nature of the, of the, 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 you know, the fragile nature of the health systems. So that every, I think everybody would agree that that would never, never happen. And you said that the the death rates, like of the um, of Corona victims, basically in in uh, Africa or African countries, poorer countries, was especially high. But how can we sure? But uh, can we be sure about this? Because we can see, you know, like here we had. Um, uh, um, in in Hamburg, like a pathologist looking, and also like in the meantime, other pathologists looking at at the whole, you know, like really going for the causes, and then they see, oh well, I mean, it's maybe like eight percent or twenty percent or whatever, like real corona deaths, and the other ones were just like other reasons or like a mix of reasons or whatever, mm -hmm. and um, but in in Africa, I assume, I mean, if you're looking at like a smaller or like a, a very poor region, I mean, there there might not be um, a lot of really investigation going on if it's really yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a difficult it's a difficult one uh you know as you say you know in all contexts the the the, the, the well, we know very well that you know this fatality figures are problematic uh and, and you know questions you know that's one of the as a social scientist i would look at one of the things i look at is the bizarre way in which data has been treated as some objective factoid in in this whole thing when you know one of the first things we get taught as social scientists is the subjective nature of data and its definitions but you know that aside you know obviously in an African context there has been a lot of stuff around you know the accuracy of the figures New York Times run a piece saying you know continent where the dead aren't counted um uh, and there have there have been lots of criticism saying you know we just don't know how bad the situation is because nobody's testing coming back to your point on testing um i think there are a few estimates that we can make uh so the who i think it was a i can't quite remember when this was but i think it was a, oh, about a year and a half ago estimated that one in seven cases of covid on the continent were recorded now i don't know how accurate that is given that testing was largely confined and my understanding to as i've mentioned really to urban areas um I, I would it could be more than that um on the other hand you know we can also look at um we can also you know look at what the death figures are in a country like nigeria where you know nigeria uh i think we wrote about this in the book i think i think the current i mean i could look it up but i think the current death rate is certainly not more than three thousand people well, well you know when, well, it might be four thousand but it's not more than certainly not more than that if you look at worldometer I might have a look in a minute, but I mean, you know, this, you know, when you consider the size of the population of Nigeria, 230 million people, I mean, this is absolutely nothing. So even if this was an underestimate, you know, so the WHO said one in seven cases, it was, it was one in 70, you know, or, you know, and, and if those say, you know, that meant that one in only one in 10 deaths were 
counted, it still would be very, very small considering the enormous population of Nigeria. So, you know, that's an example. I think that what we know is that the median age on the continent was 19.8 prior to the pandemic. Uh, the UN, that was the UN figure. And we also know that when, um, when Omicron began, you know, one of the things that began to be saying was, you know, the news coming out of South Africa, and I see you previously spoke to Angelique Kutzi, you know, the, the, the news coming out of South Africa was, um, well, this is a pretty mild. Example, the current, the, the then health secretary in the UK, Sajid Javid said, well, yes, you know, South Africa has a, has, a, has a younger population. So in fact, it was widely known that this meant that the impacts were lower in Africa. In fact, Sajid Javid said that makes that clear. Um, and that's just a statement of fact. Wow, I mean, it's really the same, the same kind of thing. And <clears throat> like the, the media, uh, I don't know if that's your your field of study as well, but like, was that also as unisono as we could see in the rest in the Western uh, industrialized world? It was basically all pushing the narrative of like this terribly, um, you know, dangerous virus and and um, how you can die when you just look at another person or whatever. Yes, I'm not the best person to talk about that, probably. I, I, there's a, I, something I can put you in touch with if you're interested, who could talk to you better about that as a colleague at the University of Nottingham, uh, Georgia Gola. Uh, but um, my understanding is that, yes, there was quite a concerted kind of um, support of government positions uh, in um, related to, and, and the most media mainly went along with that. Uh, and I suppose that relates partly to, as I say, the kind of way in which this was a paradigm for the middle classes in, in, in the African context. But I, 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 I probably wouldn't be the right person to give you really a, a de more detailed analysis of that. Yeah, but you, you, out of the of the tip of your head, basically, you don't, um, you ha don't have in mind that there's. Uh, areas where it was like all all kinds of discussions except maybe for Tanzania at the point when this uh, then yeah, I, I think in Tanzania there were that you know a lot of people you know did publicly criticize uh, Magafuli uh, and wanted to go along with it uh, what I do know is that people who did uh, who are not based in on the continent who but but from the continent who, who wrote articles at the outset saying you know this may the lockdown probably isn't the best response so there's a couple of examples I can think of I won't name the names but you know, they did get a lot of criticism from co from colleagues in who were in the continent saying, well, it's easy for you to say that, you know, you're in a, you know, you're in the, a country with a you know, better healthcare system, etc. So, which kind of suggests that they're what, they're, you know, that this kind of collective global group thing was, was pretty, uh, pretty much valid in, in, in that context as well. Mm -hmm. And with regard to the vaccines, how did that evolve? Was there a lot of uptake, like who paid for that? And are there any negative um, results that one can see from in the vaccinated yeah, crowd? That's a good question. I mean, you know, that, you know, one of the most extraordinary things about uh, the entire narrative around COVID in a way in Africa is the vaccine question, because, you know, the I, you know, so yes, COVAX uh, played a part. But then, you know, which was hardly ever reported in the Western media, actually quite a lot of the, of the vaccines were financed by World Bank loans. Uh, and as I mentioned, um, you know, this had a massive, this actually had an impact on, on existing uh, vaccination uh, regimes because uh, funds were directed to, 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 to co-vaccination. Um, 
Well, I, I've produced for Collateral Global, I'm producing a series of films on daily life in post-pandemic Senegal. And in one of them, we looked at this issue in quite a lot of detail, because basically, you know, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of countries, young people have been very reluctant to get vaccinated uh, and against COVID in Africa. And one of the main reasons, according to the filmmakers and the people they interviewed, was because of the massive loss of trust that governments had, um, in, had developed through uh, the initial response to COVID. Uh, because the response was so contrary to anything that um, made sense in the vast majority of people's lives uh, and had in many ways shredded aspects of socio social and economic and, and education, uh, people simply didn't want to then take the prescribed, um, the prescribed remedy. Uh, and I think that was, that from what I, can, from what I know, that seems to have been a, a, a even more of the case in the African continent than, than in other parts of the world. So um, I think there, there certainly have been cases of, you know, lots of stocks of vaccines which haven't been used. Uh, um, certainly there has been quite a lot of vaccines. So, you know, there was quite a lot of pressure for, for people within the middle class to, 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 to get vaccinated. I don't have any information about, um, I, you know, in, the impacts of this problem mm -hmm. on that. And were there um, a lot of, I mean, you, you mentioned the middle class people having like, so when they wanted to go to, to work and, and were not vaccinated, was it actually, actually like in Italy that you couldn't go to work anymore? Or was it just like a well, there, social so pressure? There were, some countries, there were some countries where that was the case. It's, again, it's a, diff, it's, a diff, it's a picture which is quite varied in different contexts. But certainly that was the case, for example, in Angola. I think it was the case in, in Cape Verde. Uh, so in some countries that was certainly the case. Um, in Kenya, I think it might have been the case. Uh, so it, it um, but, it, but not everywhere. So there was quite a mixed picture. Mm -hmm. And with regards to co corruption and like you know like uh, strange deals, <laughs> I don't know if you have any information. So there was a scandal here with like masks, uh, one of the polit politicians, and there was a scandal in Poland with uh, you know like respirators that didn't work and you know like some strange involvement of politicians as well uh, very expensive deals was there things like that going on do you have any yes, there, were, there was a report into this well i can give the example of senegal there was a report into this with, with, with independent report which was published um just at the end of 2022 last year which yes did detail enormous amounts of uh, of those kinds of, of deals and corruption and, you know effectively you know if if you're in a situation where there's a massive printing of money, which is effectively what we saw, you know, people will uh, behave corruptly. That, and that we saw that all over the world. I don't think it matters where you were. That happened everywhere, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned the debt. So, and the, the World Bank. Um, so, how, how, what's, what's the future like for these countries if they're now like completely indebted with uh, the well, world? Well, there's a big problem with it. austerity is a massive problem. And, and, and um, well, I mean, just to give an example, when, when, so when this report, uh, coming back to Senegal, when, when this report was published at the end of December, there were some massive protests uh, erupted across the country. And, um, and, and I heard from somebody there that, you know, one of the things that people, you know, the, the response wasn't, they said, well, you know, this was the biggest, you know, investment by the state that the state has ever made in any particular program. And, you know, that itself is a quite staggering statement, you know, because when you consider the enormous ranges of public health, socioeconomic issues that many countries on the continent face for a disease which uh, tends to attack older, vulnerable people on a continent where they 
median age is 19.8, according to the UN. For that to be far and away the largest investment in public funds is, is itself a staggering scandal. Uh, and um, and the consequence uh, is, um, well, yes, is, is, is indebtedness. And, 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 you know, well, let's see what the answer to that is, or the solution to that is. You know, we do have the precedent of uh, the Glen Eagles Summit of uh, 2005, where quite a large number of countries did have their debt uh, um, effectively wiped out. And there are precedents in international history, in European history as well, in fact, for, um, for, the, uh, for, for, the, you know, for the forgiveness of debt. Uh, and given uh, the context of a disease and its response and the impact on indebtedness and the impact that will have on massive global issues to do with uh, not only public health, but also migration uh, and poverty and the environmental issues, you know, there's clearly a huge, uh, there are lots of reasons why, economic reasons as well as, you know, moral reasons why, you know, wiping out the debt of the African country, country, countries would, would be a sensible, you know, the fair and sensible response to, 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 to what is, to, to the situation. And, um, and it's also worth remembering that after the Glen Eagle Summit of 2005, as I've mentioned already, the 2010s were a very positive decade. So, you know, there's lots of reasons why that would be a sensible response, as well as a fair response to what's happened. But at the moment, you know, uh, various people, the IMF indeed has, has called for a Glen Eagle's moment and various people are calling for a Glen Eagle's moment. One of the major issues is much of the debt is, is held by private institutions, not by um, institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank, around half. Um, and uh, so those institutions would have to somehow uh, probably be bought out. Uh, and I look at um, global, the global billionaire class who've done so well over the last few years and feel that that might be a good place to start. But um, and whether that will happen, we can say. But buying out could also mean that we're looking at like land grab or something like some sort of compensation like. Well, I mean, that's the danger. And in fact, that has been reported on. There have been, you know, uh, figures uh, very, you know, two of the richest people in the world have done exactly that in terms of uh, buying assets to uh, land uh, mining rights in Zambia, for example, in the last six months. So, um, uh, yeah, that is that, you know, what I pictured, what I, I think gave you was this kind of positive way of dealing with um, what has happened, uh, but of course there are much less positive ways of that being addressed. Well, actually it sounds quite horrific. It's, it's well, I mean, a... you know, I, I think that's all, you know, the structural macroeconomic situation is, is loud. I think we also have to bear in mind, you know, in terms of the human experience, people find ways you know, uh, one of the, you know, being an, being a, a, you know, finding ways to to make life work is, is you know, things that happens on the African continent, and you know, and that continues, that hasn't changed, and and you know, people are extremely resilient, and, and human beings in general are resilient. I, you know, even though I, I I'm utterly disgusted and scandalised by the last few years' public policies, I you know, I do still have faith in humanity as a resilient species. Uh, you know, I think we can, you know, address all of this, but uh, first of all, we have to. I'm very grateful to you for conducting investigations because first of all we have to analyze what and you know understand understand really just tell the story of what's happened 
Well, yeah, no, I, I also think that uh, we're going to finally be able to to shake off these chains, you know, yeah, and, and these, uh, you know, all these, this greediness and all these kind of things. But it's, it's an, I mean, for these countries who are already under pressure, like, you know, economically and so on, it's at least the situation has not improved, uh, on the contrary. And so they might be like also fell, fell, fell prey to to some uh, well uh, economic shenanigans by by the people in power so i think that's that's not really easy but so i guess like people also just as we have to do they have to like move together like as a sort of locally you know like help each other on a local level maybe even more than they did before yeah i mean that's certainly true and and, and for example i i spoke yeah i think yeah, a good example of that was you know when i interviewed a colleague in nigeria uh, uh, eight nine months ago one of the things he said was you know the only reason we haven't had food rights is be precisely because you know the, the sort of mutual aid is even stronger than it's ever been mm -hmm. and so i think there's a, so there's also you know there's the kind of appalling nature of the responses that now but we also have to you know also we must recognize that a lot of people have acted enormously heroically in trying to mitigate that as, as best as you know in in the way that you described so that's very important um i think there's a political dimension though we to be aware of which is I think, you know, that bad as the macroeconomic situation has got, uh, there, there are, you know, a number of different contexts in Africa. There, there are people who are genuinely trying to, politicians who, new, younger politicians who might be trying to challenge that. There's an example in Senegal, Usman Sonko. Uh, the Nigerian election would be another example, you know, that, that, that there seems to be increasing reaction against trying to allow that to happen and there, uh, among political elites, probably nationally, and I would also probably say supranationally. Mm -hmm. So one last uh, question from my side, this whole um, WHO pandemic, um, you know, power grab that we can now see that where they want to be in charge of like saying this uh, dictates to everyone, like how, how they, how people have to, to deal with the, you know, the health issues of the world. Um, do you see any resistance in like from, or like question marks, at least from African leaders? Well, it's interesting, you know, as you probably know, the, 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 the initial treaty was pushed aside partly because a number of African nations didn't want to support it. Um, which is interesting, um, and, uh, and you know, there's also been, um, as you also will know, you know, subsequently various meetings with African leaders and the WHO, which obviously probably trying to address some reasons why they didn't support it. Um, I think that, you know, these treaties are interesting. You know, I think fundamentally, when I think about those treaties, you know, do, you know, the supranational organisations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation you know, senior figures in the WHO, are they actually going to go to a small rural settlement in Angola or Senegal or uh, Malawi to make sure that a lockdown or such measures are implemented? No, of course they're not. Um, I think this is fundamentally, and again, it's interesting, you know, I would say a lot of this is really aimed at the African middle class and, and probably uh, because, as I say, you know, in terms of actually caring about what might actually happen in, in, in places, you know, that, that, that I, I can't really see that being implemented. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But I mean, also with these criticism from the African leaders, I mean, it could also be that maybe, I mean, assuming, okay, they, they might really have criticism, but it could also be that the um, WHO might just buy them out, you know, if you're so under, under debt um, pressure, um, there's at least you 
you uh, you know there might. Well, be I mean that's been the nature. Office. That's been the nature ever since uh, the 1980s and the structural adjustment program. You know that's been the nature of the uh, you know it's the philanthrocapitalist model. You know you, you destroy the economic, but you, you you know you create a structure of indebtedness around uh, that. In that time, it was the oil crisis and the impact had on. You know, you meet the full shortfall through supranational organizations, which then to take the terms of the response. So, you know, that's been the model ever since 1980s. I think we just saw a rap rapid acceleration of that model, I agree. Well, um, Wolfgang, do you have any further questions? You're muted, I think. No, it's going. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes, I I just remembered those many stories I have seen in Africa and with my talks with politicians. And when you spoke about corruption, I think in those in these times now, when when the people are even hypnotized by some something like you know, it's like a pandemic or something, what they are told, and they all they all obey. And so, I'm I'm I think when. I was always uh, happy when I when I saw the self. They have a very good self consciousness. The African people are very proud of them, of, of their families and of their of their village and of the of their state, and they are they are rather proud. And they don't trust politicians, and they know why. They experience so many bad things, and they are used to corrupt politicians. Yeah, and um, so they don't obey, and maybe. That life in such a country where you never obeyed politicians, where you never believe politicians, when those politicians suddenly tell you there is something very, very dangerous, that many people are protected because they mistrust. And uh, I, I think Africa, in Africa, the whole thing was not so important as we, as in, in Europe, we are much more influenced by by this by this fear and by this all this. COVID-19 story than the, the African people. And maybe there is, people try to, to, to deal with it and there is influence from, from the money, of the government, and they try to do such things. But you know, when I was in, when I, for instance, Angola, the Chinese have a big influence in Angola. And um, they built the streets in Angola. And they, they built a hospital in, this, in the capital. And when I saw this hospital, it was a very good hospital with everything in it, with the radio, X-ray, and everything. It was empty; it was not used. And when I went to, when I went through the streets, with, with, it was very difficult to pass through. It was all exhaustion. It was all dirt, and it was people cramming, and there were people selling food in the middle of the street. And it was it was a little bit like chaos. But I saw so many people smiling that are used. To this chaos and that have arranged in this case that all oh, what we think in london or in berlin or wherever in europe or when we try to, to to rate what the people might do and how they how they arrange with what they experience i think we it's very difficult for us to find out the truth so i i trust in this in those people experienced people in africa who experienced so many bad things but most of the bad things they experience they experience from from countries who make them colonies, and who afterwards, when they set them free, still 
are trying to exploit them to get the oil, to get the copper, to get the gold, to get the diamonds, to get all this. And, and they do it with the help of corrupt governments. And I would be very interesting about the about the about the discussion that is going on in, in um, yes you have you have the the African you have the African states gathered in the African Union, and there is discussion going there are discussions sometimes going on in the African Union. And I would be very interested to to read or to read the the papers and to to find out what the African Union was discussing in this time. Do you know something about that? Yeah, that's. Oh, a, they, I, mean, I know a little bit. I, I know a little bit about uh, what some of the major foundations within Af charitable foundations within Africa were discussing. You know, and, and uh, African foundations, and they were largely following the, kind of, um, the Western paradigm. You know, the paradigm around you know the, the disastrous potential impact in on the continent and the need to the. And effectively, I think, as I say, for me, in many ways, the response in Africa was effectively a class issue. You know, the Western, the Western influenced class followed the bio, wanted to follow the Western biomedical response because that was what you know the, the mantra of good governance. That was good governance. That was to show that you were a good, glo a responsible global citizen. And obviously, I may, give you, I may give you another example. Of what happened when I what I experienced in Conakry in Guinea? Uh huh. You know where where the Ebola outbreak was. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a colleague there. He has a laboratory, and it's so easy to stop Ebola when you have a laboratory. You can just find out the cases and you can isolate them and you can yeah. stop the whole thing. Yeah. And he wanted to do it, and he went to the government and he went to the de ambassadors and he said, "Let me do it." He said, "No, this is this is matter of the WHO. WHO has leadership in this." And they have to they arrange it. WHO let them do all the time. Nothing happened for months. Yeah. And, and during this time, Mac Dome made a clinical study to find out to, to get to have the a new vaccine against Ebola in clinical studies for a new vaccine. And they it they needed this time of Ebola outbreak to have the clinical study finished. Uh -huh. and WHO was saying this is a very important thing. And when they had the clinical studies on and it was ready, then Ebola stopped. I think it's a, another way the pharmaceutical companies and Gavi, horrible Gavi, and a global fund, and Bill and Melinda Gates. I experienced all of them. I saw their business. I don't trust them at all. And uh, they are the WHO. They are they are telling WHO what to do. So I think we have to be very careful. I like the African people. I like it so much in Africa. Mm. They are so strong, but they yeah. should be more self. They should. Well, I mean, I think the, yeah. the interesting thing I think about the medical in that way, and you'll know this. You know, have you seen the vaccination model as it's rolled out in Africa in various ways? But you know, of course, it has. You know, it has a deep-rooted. People are mistrustful in Africa. I think in often of these programs because of the colonial history that they have. A history of, you know, for example, the oral polio vaccine trials in uh, in Congo and Burundi in the late 1950s. You know, there's a there's an enormous history there, which is very often very little discussed, really, in the Western nations. But which mean that you know, most African citizens are automatically distrustful of 
large scale rollouts of of, of, of of some kind of measures i think and um and yeah and yeah i think as you say that the um that's of course now simply reproduced within the economic frameworks which you describe and taking you know which which direct the nature of of, of of global public health so i think you have a very interesting topic in your in your in your science and i i wish you good luck <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, I, if I can just make one comment, which I think would be of, of relevance to your investigations, you know, I think really, for me, you know, as a, you know, I mentioned that my previous work was on um, uh, the pre-colonial period, and I think it's, you know, the, the question of how did an entire field, you know, a lot of disciplines went missing, but one which is not discussed very much is international development, you know, the entire international development sector went missing in action you know I mean all of these issues related to the social determinants of public health uh you know the economic the, the relationship between GDP and public and, and life expectancy the impacts of you know the diversion of uh testing apparatus from malaria to COVID all of this was you know absolutely bread and butter for the international development sector so it shouldn't have been left to a historian of pre-colonial Africa to pick this up. It really shouldn't, you know, and that's, you know, I have to say, I, I and uh, I, I still struggle to really forgive it. Yeah, it's really amazing. And it's it's impacted so many people. I mean, such a huge amount of people, you know, like also in, on an economic level. And it's really strange that that is completely out of the picture here. I mean, it's like sometimes it was, you know, considered a little bit, oh, yeah, there might be problems in the supply chain and problems for the poor people there. But like, I mean, no, no real focus on that. I mean, that is so like affecting so much more people than instead the coronavirus, basically, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's well, really important, very, and very important that you shine a line on this, a light on that dark um, area. It's very important that we look at that, and I'm curious to learn more. Some of the aspects, I think there's there's even more to detect, and uh, I'm sure you well, continue. I, I think you, I think you, 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 you would be, you know, if if you would like uh, in your investigation to, you know, maybe you should talk to some colleagues on the continent as well. It would be interesting for you to perhaps interview some of those figures and they could give you a, a more grounded perspective than I, than I can I might you know obviously it's, it's kind of comparative but yeah it's it, it, it's it's fast yeah super so we'll stay in touch it would be great if you could also direct us to people that you know who might also contribute yeah. to the investigation efforts and um, yeah thanks ever so much for thank you very being much with us and today. thank you for your work thanks thank you thank you Bye. Yeah, we have our next guest uh, uh, in the light. Guest uh, on the line. And uh, the first, I think he is uh, under time pressure, uh, Werner Müller, and critical medical caregivers. And we wanted to take a look what it, what it's like at this uh, in this area, what is happening in care services, uh, what pressures are employees uh, subject to, etc. Thank you very much, and that I've managed to uh, be online. Can you hear me? No, I can hear you well. Great. Now, could you uh, give us a bit of uh, background on what for of of yourself and what you're doing, and what uh, drives you to? I mean, you are one of. Uh, those 
that are uh, uh, involved in uh, critical medical caregivers for the last 30 years. I've been working in this field and since 2016 and at the moment I work at a specialist hospital for lung disease and um, I was, was involved in uh, working both in acute medicine as well as in intensive care. The picture is frozen. We've lost the sound. Oh, we didn't hear you. Could you repeat that, please? Uh, your experiences in intensive care units? Yes. Now, as I said, uh, from the beginning, we were involved with Corona, but at the, from the beginning, we handled it differently at the lung diseases hospital. Uh, we didn't want to get driven crazy by the pictures in the press we we've lost the sound i'm sorry we've lost the sound Werner, would you uh, switch off your video feed please is he still with us So what we've heard is that you said that you ha are experienced in dealing with severe lung diseases. Yes, correct. That's one thing. And but we have been suffering from the disastrous health policy for uh, for 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 years because of the budgeting. And over the last 20 years, care was uh, given less and less money, uh, caused by the fact that hospitals have become um, pro profit centers, patients have become um, a commodity. We have lost the sound. of a certain assessment of the financial you know you if you you get to a point where the patient is no longer profitable so the discrepancy between uh, uh, hospital funding policy and billing and the actual situation on site is getting worse and worse then corona started and we we saw the pictures and at the beginning we also worried however uh, you quickly notice that um, they come and we need to do our therapy and put them in isolation and we did oxygen therapy we made sure that patients who came with COVID, severe COVID, I saw the more serious cases that we didn't intubate them if not absolutely necessary so we uh, put set uh, you know, s we set certain limits, medical uh, limits. We we did, you know, and then there was the uncertainty: can you get catch it through aerosols, etc. We did it anyway, and the studies uh, showed that aerosols are not as serious as uh, was assumed. 
and I never got infected as did uh, same as my colleagues and there obviously is, comes a time when you have to intubate but you and for the patient it's dangerous whether they have corona or not <laughs> and we made sure that we uh, can do without and then we noticed that the disease that we do take seriously and I do see the serious effects aspects not just the political manipulation uh, the, 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 the uh, numbers game you know first the R value then the incidence the picture is frozen I'm sorry we have no sound And as a treating, we said we do not want to uh, ensure that they use it for political ends, which they have been doing for years. Unfortunately, many colleagues in the first months, it wasn't a problem. We worked together and did our, our best. But then we quickly discovered disastrous conditions in care homes where people were neglected and the problem they still need to be emancipated. Then we tried to educate people about the disease and reporting in the media particularly uh, you know many, most people who talk about corona have never cared for a patient and have never seen the difference between lung failure and uh, and uh, and corona and of course it's difficult because uh, factual information is important the pcr test numbers etc are important but who uh, apart from the nurses, who knows what it's like, the nurses who uh, provide therapy on site, we are involved, we treat, and we have to, you know, get people, wean people off respiration, and uh, politics then uh, used us for their own ends, and colleagues who you know worked were working together well were suddenly no longer cooperating were uh, you know uh, refusing to talk to each other and the the whole thing is dreadful what corona has done to the people what the what politicians have done to the people and what we have accepted and uh, i we should stand up and fight for our profession because our profession is a beautiful uh, and an important profession. Uh, the picture is frozen. We have no sound. And to adequately care for them. And it's not just hospitals, it's also care homes. 
the conditions are getting worse and uh, the restrictions that are placed on hospitals and care homes are deliberately set in such a way that they cannot be met. We, why are hospitals being closed when we need uh, staff and beds? It's a financial aspect. Hospital funding uh, follows economic rules. We have no sound. We can't hear you. We have no sound. Can you hear me? Werner Müller is gone. Werner, we couldn't hear you. You said something about the economic link, uh, link at the hospital, you know, the. I think that's the last thing you mentioned. Getting worse and worse because uh, the same politicians like Lauterbach, etc., health minister, for thousands of people who were injured and killed by the vaccinations, They were involved in the change of the uh, hospital landscape. They're not doing anything for uh, uh, cares and nurses. They're just we we have we have we have certain uh, laws uh, that uh, will be. I'm sorry. We have no sound. We have no picture. nursing 1.5 1.7 million employees we have no sound sorry we can't hear you i'm sorry could we make sure that this uh, is attended to We'll take a break here and uh, see whether we can um, improve the technology because it's a pity you are saying important things and we can't.
Yes, we are back here. Uh, we had a little technical hiccup here. I hope that we will uh, be able to hear Vana now. Perhaps you could start again where you uh, left off. You talked about um, the patient becoming a commodity more and more. Yes, this is not a corona-specific problem that uh, happened before corona. Uh, over the last 20 years it uh, deteriorated, but during corona we had the political problems that the reporting uh, was incorrect. People were worried and scared, but behind the scenes uh, funding continued and uh, money was to be made. Obviously, there were subsidies and uh, certain um, uh, investment that was uh, made uh, in other areas of nursing, which <coughs> there are, there were monies paid to nursing, and were then uh, reclaimed by the tax authorities, even though they they had to prove uh, that the, what they were used for, and they used them correctly, uh, and then finally. Uh, the tax authorities uh, came to uh, claim it back, and that was, of course, uh, you know, crazy because you can uh, uh, drive a, a, a company against the wall through that. But let's talk about nursing. Nursing is worse off than ever before. Before first during Corona, it was manipulated, and it was. Uh, treated badly by politicians because of the requirement to be vaccinated and suddenly psychologically unexplicable only the colleague who was not vaccinated was a bad colleague and he was a Nazi and a right winger but the, the facts the disease vaccination very early in my practice, I saw very serious complications in connection with the vaccination and whether the whether the vaccination was at fault or not. But the uh, factual discussion that the patient says, "I I feel bad. I feel poorly," I, I is not happening at all. So back to nursing. Nursing at the moment is uh, very uh, badly off. We, ha we are hemorrhaging uh, nurses. Some of them are moving abroad. Uh, a lot of them no longer want to work in nursing because they said, I've, I've given everything during the pandemic. Nothing has changed. And uh, vaccinated colleagues as well have noticed uh, they have problems, they are not as healthy, and unfortunately, you know, this is being picked up very slowly. And if the government continues that way, because we have a problem already, we had a problem before Corona, and now we have uh, a, disa a looming disaster in nursing where people can no longer, where the service can no longer be provided. Unfortunately, acute 
medicine is claiming a large proportion of funding in other countries in Europe uh, in, in, in most because I noticed it's moving in the wrong direction in many uh, countries uh, in Scandinavia for example more money is uh, spent on prevention you know so that more money is spent on prevention to prevent people from getting seriously ill and um, and and nursing nurses educating even children already at uh, uh, nursery schools about proper diet about exercise etc healthy living and uh, you know uh, seriously ill people old people sick people who uh, are more and more uh, uh, living in isolation at home they are no longer cared for properly because home nurses there are no longer enough home uh, uh, nurses available etc um, we we have to fight for example the incredible um, requirement that every patient needs a single room so you have to refurbish and uh, renovate a care home which is impossible and not every in not every uh, care home inhabitant wants a single room so it's incredible requirements uh, that are set by people who have no knowledge of the conditions um, at the front and uh, people are they are suffering from burnout they no longer feel like they want to work in nursing I have to say we will continue uh, in critical medical care we have uh, we, we have uh, educated and informed people about corona about vaccinations I have invited Andreas Pfeiffer and we have good contact uh, to France, to our colleagues in France. And we are also informing about what is happening in other uh, countries. Look at France. We had a requirement to uh, state that we were vaccinated, but we were allowed to work. For example, I had no problems. I wasn't. Uh, people had different uh, opinions etc but it wasn't the case ev everywhere in other unvaccinated couldn't even visit a notable Andreas Pfeiffer is a teacher uh, his wife is a physiotherapist and since de September 21 Uh, you are banned from working your profession. Could you mute your microphone? And I have a couple of questions. And it was very nice to work with Andreas and his colleagues. It was about the new WHO plans almost 100,000 people in the health service in France were driven out of work. They were banned from working. Uh, they had no right to claim benefits. Many uh, killed themselves. And 
uh, nurses and doctors who were needed had to work as cleaners, could no longer feed their families, etc. Andreas will tell you more about that. It is a disaster what happened in Europe, in France. The law still is still applicable. What makes me angry is that people are still, they have been incompetent by driving people who to have a therapy that made them sick or cost sick or cost them their lives, and they're still um, in. They're still in their physicians, and Herr Lauterbach knows full well what's happening and what the impact and the risks would be. They knew, they di can't say that they didn't know, they knew exactly what was going to happen. Man many nurses and doctors see it and they keep mum because they're scared or because they want to uh, uh, toe the line. And it's of course bad for business, but um, I could continue a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to know, can you see that of the nurses that are working, that you know, and that are vaccinated, that uh, they that, 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 that they're more sick than, you know, from your anecdotal uh, p perception. Can you confirm that something has changed, that they're sick more often? In my, amongst my colleagues, <coughs> we can say that many suffer, many have neurological problems, some have allergy problems, some have a general state of being prone to catch something. I mean, <coughs> it's not, they don't drop down dead, but many um, people suffer from a compromised immune system. They are sick, they don't feel well, they have a headache, they have nerve pain. You cannot 100% prove that, you know, because we don't have enough uh, uh, algorithms to, to prove it. Um, but Many say, I just don't feel well. And the other question, Anna, the patients that you are looking after or where you have information uh, about where you know uh, about them from colleagues, etc., do you have the impression that are there younger pe young people or people with serious uh, causes or are they vaccinated? Is it? At the beginning, the narrative was there were only unvaccinated people in intensive care. But that was due to the fact that not many people were vaccinated. Now, obviously, you, you cannot general, generalize it about it. Corona is no longer acute. I think we have no corona patients at the, at the moment. We have other seriously ill people. Corona as a disease is not a problem at the moment, but in the terrible times, we I saw many patients who told me 
I don't know what, whether it has to do with the vaccination, but five days after, I, I, I felt bad. I got no air. They had, people had more. Uh, had, they had dyspnea. They had more infections. When pa people say to me whether it is caused by vaccinations or not, I have to take it uh, seriously. And as a working hypothesis, when did you have your? When did your symptoms appear? And that applies to every doctor as well. And I talk to patients now and then. You should do that, yeah. And. I have a question. Is every patient tested when they come? Okay, so when you have no uh, testing, when you do no testing, you have no cases. That's really a perversity. It's interesting because we don't just uh, test for COVID, we test for influenza and RSV. And we do that. And what are the consequences when they're positive? Uh, when patients have an acute respiratory uh, uh, tract disease, we treat the respiratory uh, disease first. And then the question is, do they have symptoms? How, how, how serious are the symptoms, etc. As someone is sick and infectious, at the beginning, because everyone, you know, the first three, four months, it was uh, confusing because nobody knew. But uh, Mr. Vodak is also a pulmonologist. You, 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 you do. You ventilate people differently from an anesthesiologist. You know, both can do it, but both do it slightly differently. Uh, it was successful, but uh, you mustn't wait too long. Sometimes you have to intubate. Good, Andreas. I have to shoot off. Well, have fun. Thank you very much for, for, for joining us. See you soon. Andreas, your turn. Hello. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? You're not, uh, you're not, your, 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 your video stream is not on. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, greetings to Germany. We are going to an alternative uh, medical congress. I don't think I can show you a picture. Ask my technician here by my side in the car. Can you can you hear me well? Yes, yes, we we, we can hear. So we can do without the picture. <coughs> okay. So on my background, we have started an association in September 2021 with doctors caretakers, firefighters, and so on, because these people depended on the vaccination mandates. Uh, so there were 60, 70 professions in France um, 
who were man suspended from 15th September 2022, uh, 21. <clears throat> so from a law passed in August in 21, uh, they were kicked out of their jobs if they couldn't prove that they were vaccinated and they had no right for any social funds, uh, uh, unemployment benefits and so on. Uh, my wife, for example, who is an osteopath, uh, had to pay the expenses of her praxis practice. That's completely illegal because it is not legal to mandate a part of the population with a product which is in a test phase. That is a clear um, violation of the privacy sphere and uh, that is absolutely cruel for the people who lost their existence, who had to sell their houses, had to sell their cars. Um, we were trying to help these people and we gave the material and moral support. So first of all, we started the legal proceedings and we helped them with food, but also um, mental support because losing your job, losing your existence from one day to the next is a brutal psychological experience to undergo and some are still suffering from it and so we started a, an association saying uh, called Together We Are Strong and uh, <clears throat> we started to go to Paris. So from the Fogies, um we went to, we walked to Paris, 250 kilometers. We had doctors with us, we had scientists with us. Uh, Professor Christian Perron is very famous in France. He's been the first, the chair of the High uh, Consultation of the uh, High Council of Health. And he was our uh, mentor. We were received in France, in Paris, in the Memorial of Resistance, where we could have a public uh, presentation saying that we want this brutal situation. We want incrimination, not discrimination. No, we want uh, integration, not discrimination. Um, we want to have alternative therapies accepted, uh, ivermectin and so on. And we tried to publish all this on our 30, on our 15 leg walk. And from that we started to work together with other associations who really focused on the madness going on in schools, the mask mandates and the promotion of the vaccination, which is of course a full lie, a fairy tale promotion. We focused on conferences, we had marches with other French groups, uh, 600 kilometers from the south of France, a group uh, moved and we joined with a group in uh, Luxembourg um, with a professor 
Professor Long, he uh, organized a march um, across five countries, uh, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Holland and Germany, in order to point out and uh, call out for the brutal methods of suspending and creating a link in the society which is completely split up <clears throat> and alternative and medically proven means to uh, help people and these marches have really caused a lot of echo and this is why I'm very happy that we could uh, network with Werner and his group they helped us very much in building up pressure on the government that this scandal Frandl was the last uh, country to keep up the vaccination mandate that everywhere where we were in the European Parliament uh, with video conferences where videos were brought and published and the people who have been suspended by now are hired again in France from 15th of May a decree has been enacted that they can work again but this is only a battle this is not winning the war because the decree says they can be kicked out at any time they won't get any compensation and they have to do individual negotiations with their employers how to be integrated whether they get back to their job because they've lost the job the right to the same job that they've had and the same conditions and uh, these things are still not over many of the people are fearful in panic in their work they have been kicked out for nearly two years they've been treated like dirt and uh, now they have to rebuild um, and this is what our network is there to join up to support there's one historical ruling by a court in France that uh, helps us. My lawyer is called um, Nathalie Deschere. She got a cleaning lady who was suspended for two years that she had to be rehired immediately that she gets 30,000 euros compensation and that her uh, lawyers expenses her lawyers fees are paid and that gives us hope that the employment and the labor courts uh, are now turning to what we have been saying over the past two years the codex the Nuremberg Codex, the French Constitution and the health uh, laws have to be obeyed and uh, that is a good thing that we have achieved that with this uh, court ruling we get forward that sounds good I'm hearing of this for the first time and that is quite hopeful so can we assume that this is just one single ruling or is and there's many other rulings in that same area or is that only the start of the discussion the problem is that <coughs> the administration courts are not going along 
we have the firefighters, the nurses and so on have been kicked out and this was all done by the administration courts. The administration courts are staffed by the government uh, in France. Um, <clears throat> and so they are fully dependent and the labor courts are less dependent so this court which on 4th of May ruled this verdict is a, uh, a shot in the right direction because the people are being hired again but they have to f go to court for their compensations by themselves they have to uh, do that with a lawsuit, it won't be possible otherwise. There is a light of hope in the horizon in France because on the 4th of May 2023 there was a, a, court, a uh, law taken to the Parliament that the vaccination mandate is kept up. So that's 15th of August 2021 that this is uh, kicked over kicked out but the pressure by Macron is so high that um, <clears throat> this uh, rule was passed in the first hearing it's blocked in the Senate now nobody knows whether it's going to be negotiated because it has to come back to the Parliament and then this brutal illegal vaccine mandate can be dropped only then when that law is passed but that is still pending it's pending on the decision of the senate it is depending on how it will return to the parliament and this is why it's important that we keep the pressure up and uh, we keep um, education up nothing is for sure sure yet um, staff can be suspended anytime again because this decree can be cancelled at any time and this is why we are very happy to be able to talk to you today to make this public because we've got lots of solidarity from Germany that creates a lot of pressure on the French government and the networks are helping we have to network across Europe so that we can address the causes of the scandal the corruption and the conflict of interests the plan that we have behind this is global and this is why in Europe we all have to coordinate our efforts Wolfgang yes we have heard that if it is the case in France that it has such severe consequences, is there a uh, don't they have a Gallian uh, village in France? Is there any region where politicians politicians say uh, are there any l local nests of resistance? Well, there's Gaelic villages everywhere. We have got this uh, around Epinal. Uh, there is um, a resistance in the Breton, in Perigueux. Uh, strong uh, resistance everywhere. But, of course, that is not the... That's not enough. We don't need everybody, but we need three and a half percent of the people and consistent and committed resistance. I'm sure it'll tip over. 
but it is still the minority, but the resistance has tipped over the public discussion in France. Only 25% of these vaccines have been sold and, and given to the people, really. The European Commission bought 4.6 billion doses, and only 25% of these have been uh, have been uh, 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 injected, and uh, nobody wants the four doses. Uh, and uh, the, the it's not as strong in the media as in Germany. Germany is a step ahead here. It's coming to the mainstream media, the corruption, and the uh, <clears throat> and the adverse effects. And we have processes. We have legal uh, claims against. We have um, lawsuits against Pfizer government and politicians at the basis. There's lots of people going on um, in France. Uh, we have uh, the Wolves, for example, an association fighting for the children to stop the mask mandates and uh, that this madness of the vaccination stops and um, the organization and associations that we have joined up with makes us strong, that we get connections everywhere. And uh, I can talk about my case as a teacher. I have been suspended for a number of months as well from service because I have given it, uh, left it to the pupils to decide whether to take a mask or not. I said I don't want to torture you. I don't want to mistreat you. And I talked publicly about this um, risk of the vaccine, which doesn't make sense. And that suspended me for a number of months. I was integrated back. I was kicked out again with lawsuits and so on. And I have a new lawsuit now on 20th of June and a fortnight because I didn't shut up. I still uh, like the resistance in Germany. I mobilized people. I published people. I published things. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, the um, ministry of the schools in France, uh, which is of case in line, doesn't want to hear this. And teachers who open their mouths have to be punished. And that's a pity people here are not open for alternative opinions it's this is about a debate <clears throat> you can be and you have to be able to to be of a different opinion i'm mobbed i'm harassed and people want to kick me out and get rid of me and this applies for germany as well everybody who is in for a public open dialogue uh, just uh, <clears throat> like we have had that in Germany that we come up with evidence, scientific evidence. If that is brought to you outside, <clears throat> immediately you are kicked out, you are discredited, you are censored, and um, you are uh, overrun with lawsuits, you get jailed and these things. These are the hurdles that we have to take together and uh, these hurdles are in front of us. However, they don't scare us. We know where to go and we want to go. And what about the situation in France in general? Do you see many people outside of the 
health professions. Do they have doubts? Um, what do people talk about closed, uh, behind closed doors? Or is there still believers, even if they don't want the fourth jab? Are they still caught in the narrative? Or is there more resistance? We do see more resistance, quite clearly. Uh, nobody wants to get the shots anymore. And more and more, we see a consens emerging that those who were scrutinizing, who were in resistance, that they were right. And the doubts are growing. That's important. People start asking questions. And what is also important is that there's lots of alternative media in France and uh, connect to our networks in Belgium and Luxembourg who publish these things. You can't sweep them under the rug anymore. And this is a very good point for us. Things are starting to crumble. And nobody can say that this vaccine is unharmful and uh, that it is efficient in any way. So behind closed doors, more and more people uh, get doubts. And that is the... Uh, that is because of the uh, media, the Corona Committee from Germany, the Independent Committee um, in France, uh, that these things are being published. We, of course, want to speed things up here, but things are being um, brought to the public awareness and the lawsuits are ongoing. And so there's a lot of hope along the horizon. Yes, okay, one more question. The French tend to revolutions and uh, things happened actually uh, not long ago. I don't know uh, what is the process against Macron going on still? So is uh, there hope that this will take to the streets as well? The uh, street fighting is very, very active in France, also with the pension reforms, uh, which are just as absurd as everything else was. Um, the age pyramid is quite different in France than it is in Germany. In France, you wouldn't need to do a pension reform. Millions of people took to the streets. There was massive pressure. The uh, Gaelic were on the streets, and it were, they were beaten down by the police. The police uses weapons like these rubber bullets and uh, splinter grenades, which are not used in Germany. There was many, many injured. People lost their legs and limbs and, uh, and eyesight. Brutal. This is why France is criticized by many uh, sides, by the UN Human Rights Commission, by the uh, European Parliament, that the methods that Macron used are simply illegal and uh, not justifiable in a European context. This is medieval stuff amidst of Europe. Uh, uh, if you think you can be injured in a, a demonstration, you will think whether you will go again. But it's still going on. There's still hope that this massive movement on the 8th of May, 8th June, there is a decision in Parliament that this may be reversed, that the democratic forces will prevail and this uh, idea is dropped of the reform. So there is hope and many people are more more 
starting to recognize that we are not living in a democracy and that we have to fight for our rights and that we can't slip into an authoritarian system and mustn't allow for that to happen. And is resistance stronger in urban areas? I have the impression that uh, Paris is very expensive. Many people are occupied simply to uh, live their livelihood. Um, is it different in rural areas? Um, or is it the same everywhere? Can't you see any difference? Well, of course, the resistance is higher in Paris because uh, that's where the many people are but over the past month there was big rallies in rural areas and small cities as well so Macron with his brutal totalitarian politics has built up a hard front against himself with many people joining um, in the past it was the unions who fought against each other now they are all unified against these reforms of Macron and uh, he has uh, created unity amongst everybody in the resistance and the population and we didn't want to do that uh, that was accidental uh, and uh, it is strong still however um, I can't foresee how this is going to turn out but with our association we have a doctor Dr. Gochibai who is a very uh, um, loud whistleblower we're going to do actions and take actions for that education to go on we are seeing um, vaccination mandate coming or pressure for it that the schools are changed to get um, um, uh, uterus can uh, uh, vaccination centers against uterus cancer uh, so the ministry is uh, completely out of its role uh, uh, so the schools have been uh, are changed uh, the schools are made to vaccination centers and we have to fight this. We went to Geneva a couple of days ago uh, against this new pandemic uh, treaty of the UN, which will open the doors for totalitarianism. So if they ex uh, invent a new uh, uh, disease, they can uh, uh, oblige us with measures and nobody can do anything against it. So there's lots of activity going on to fight this and circumstances that we have to fight against but I do have hope you've just mentioned Gotayo Dugudjevain who's he? he is one of the he was one of the first to in 2021 as a doctor to massively go into resistance against the vaccination, informing and educating people. He spoke at big rallies, uh, political rallies, <clears throat> and we have built up our association around it. He was invited to Paris many times. He was in many media, and all media really, and he was one of the first to 
point these things out. There's many, many doctors in Wisden. Another one was Dr. Hobbs, who may be able to talk to you in a minute. He was suspended because he warned against the vaccination and the vaccination damage, and he talked in front of the Luxembourg Parliament. He called out for that Europe march with many people who joined in Luxembourg. He uh, organized resistance marches, and uh, these whistleblowers, there's quite a number of them. Everybody's important. We... Um, <clears throat> encompassed and and work across borders now that's great i haven't heard of this i didn't know that there's such a strong activity ongoing in france we have been seeing this every now and every again and uh, still it was um, the impression that france is quite adjusted and people are not so resistant i was wondering if that was true because this uh, strong movement um, that the French uh, take the streets for um, easily take to the streets um, that's kind of anchored in the culture of the country so I'm great to I'm pleased to hear that all of these things are going on and it's not just uh, this uh, street fighting in Paris due to the uh, pension reforms but the awareness to the um, mischievous measures is that stronger in Paris than in the rural areas as well we have many farmers who have understood what's going on because they are uh, more uh, connected to nature and don't fall for these stories yes we have heard this as well that people in, in France who go to their common sense as we call it uh, and think what makes sense and what doesn't there may be things that um, are simple People think it's not tested. What good is it for me? And uh, I don't need 100,000 things that I have to hear about it. If there is a danger, it's like with children. If children have uh, see a danger, you try to protect them. Or uh, you come up with a moratorium for precautions. And some people take these precautions for themselves independently. And in Paris, we had the situation that politicians joined the resistance where there was Filippo Filippo uh, has been on a rally every Saturday for two years with millions of people joining but what we have to say as well is why is this resistance in France been broken again and again we have a media monopoly in France there are nearly all media are in the hands of eight nine billionaires who uh, and corporations that means the public opinion is uh, shaped and alternative opinions are strongly suppressed this is why our support from the alternative media is so important and by that uh, we have reached some journalists who uh, <clears throat> come up with an official and right analysis and again and again uh, it is attempted to discredit us 
Like in Germany, uh, we are insulted at the worst. Uh, people have been uh, dragged in front of the courts and people have gone to jail as well. And these media try uh, to discredit these movements, but they can't stop it anymore. And by now, because the wind has changed, these topics are blown into the mainstream media, just like in Germany. But Germany is ahead of us, and that's great, that's good, and that is your um, merit as well, that we get to the people and that we start, we trigger them thinking for themselves and that they don't just note that they have been betrayed uh, and indoctrinated, but that they start thinking about the system that they live in, where corruption and and now the sound is gone again, unfortunately. Your line is uh, chopped. <clears throat> Are you still with us? Yes. Yes, I am. At least partially. Can you hear me? We've lost you. Well, uh, something happened. There was a French intervenience here, maybe. Um, so what I just said is that uh, it is very important that all this education work that the Corona Ausschuss did, that uh, many edu many groups did, it's important to get the people to think for themselves and more and more people are getting doubts whether everything was okay and I don't think many of them um, are going to be betrayed again when new measures are rolled out and they come up with a story like this again and uh, the politics are uh, uh, rolled out against any common sense again. Yes, uh, I have one more question. Uh, yes. Now, uh, with regard to the climate uh, climate change caused by uh, humans and other topics, uh, do you find that uh, there is a split? Uh, with regard in, with uh, inside the resistance movement um, about new um, topics or are there uh, people within the movement who who who, who will not uh, follow uh, and uh, split uh, when it comes to other topics what are you uh, seeing in france well this uh, trend is obviously there that uh, is uh, that they are trying to sometimes apart to to drive them into resistance groups and uh, for me it's normal that you have uh, different uh, opinions and I think the analyses of of the World Climate Council and I've invited the deputy uh, of the Climate Council to uh, the um to the to to my lessons and to show how climate has changed throughout the ages but what is important is whether to what extent this is successful this is not the point for us for us it's important to change and we try to do that 
through our society and through our protests. We f need to find alternative uh, ways of life and we need to uh, step out of the economic pressure. We need to have uh, less competition, more local uh, uh, biological agriculture and a more human uh, society that we need to create. And uh, obviously everyone has their own ideas, but uh, we need to uh, focus and put humans at the center again and and nature and the environment and obviously there are theses where, where they say oh it's all nonsense it's all uh, it's it's not made caused by humans uh, it is uh, communicated so that certain things are implemented for me it doesn't matter for me what's important is that we leave the system that we that we you know that we don't promote economic growth we need to get back to a more human scale of cooperation and I think that is the difference and I think that's normal I didn't mean so much that topic but um, is it that, that some topics have uh, the potential to split people but perhaps uh, this is not the case in France perhaps um, this is uh, something that people are not primarily interested in I think it's great that this is happening uh, uh, we need to uh, keep tabs on it and see what can be done from our side or how uh, we could be inspired by the activities in France because I think it is a uh, it is uh, uh, something that can guide us we had the boss from Francois it was a critical uh, uh, newspaper uh, how, how did that develop Francois with Xavier Sablier is a very good um, me medium as the biggest alternative medium uh, in in TV in France, and it's very good. Many critical um, people are given a voice: uh, scientists, psychologists, uh, legal experts like Alejandro Guilherand, or as I said before, Perron, Alexander Orion Port, or doctors from Europe who have who are critical that's very good and in Belgium uh, there is as good media as all Mexus or Kairos or, or I can't remember all of them but <coughs> good initiatives have developed and sprung up there so, because these journalists do, are doing their, their job you know they are they are on the they, they 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 publish the truth on the basis of the Munich agreement of 1972 and that we establish close links with Germany is good as well and we inspire each other and that's why Benox the doctor he's he's there he speaks German very well. He can uh, tell you interesting things. 
because he was suspended and he achieved a historical court decision and he can talk about that um, and uh, he can uh, serve as an inspiration for all of us. It's fantastic, Mr. Pfeiffer. That's really exciting what you've been telling us. I'm uh, very pleasantly surprised by the situation in France and uh, we will definitely um, keep in touch and um, we should investigate that further and I think there is I've, I've, there is a, a Corona committee in France which you mentioned, yes. So we have not no contact yet. I only recently learned that they are so active. Uh, it's good to um, get in touch. Thank you very much Vivian for enabling me to uh, explain a few things. It's great. I enjoyed it to um, keep in touch with you and I think I will try to um, establish the, the contact that you that you mentioned and and perhaps facilitate that and perhaps that will uh, thank you very much fantastic now <coughs> great um, great that it works um, on the road so to speak great work and I'm looking forward to uh, finding out more and I'm sure that uh, the na narrative has uh, you know people people are, uh, are fed up with being told what to do and I think there is an increase, um, um, an, an increase, more critical um, attitude. Super, thank you very much. And when we do uh, uh, things, um, bigger things, uh, we can invite you and um, we can see how to coordinate certain things. What's extremely important is to uh, um, take action against the new pandemic. Um, um, agreement and I think to ensure that many people um, um, follow that and join us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you and uh, have a nice weekend. All the rest to Germany. Now, I have to leave now. Thank you. Miss Dr. Ox, I'm pleased. Can you hear me? Can you hear us? Yes, quite quite well. Uh, we can see you and I see that you have a friendly animal with you. That's uh, very likable, thank you. Now, you um, please tell us a little bit about your background and uh, you are also, as I've uh, just learned, you have a procedure that you want to tell us about. Good evening. My German is not as good, but I'll try anyway. I'm quite um, pleased that I can talk to you <coughs> and Dr. Vodak that I'm that I have a lot of respect for. Now, I'm a GP. And I had a big practice, about 50 patients per day I had. And when COVID uh, appeared with a new uh, health policy, we had no right to see patients 
and to to dispense medication and I saw that the medication works but I didn't follow the policy and I did it regularly until April 2021 and during that time I had around 2,000 people that I treated and no patient uh, died and in April 2021 after one year I had I had seen many patients and I, I had no right they had they, they had no PCR and I, I had no right to see them and the protocol said we can you can no longer consult uh, you can no longer provide consultation to patients and 30% of people died from COVID and during that time I could no longer I felt exhausted I had And politicians told me that I could no longer work and and I I attended a demonstration and 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 as I was told I could no speak not speak and I thought I said it was criminal to do that and I. And I went to the Committee of Doctors and I went uh, I was invited by the Medical Supervisory Council and I was treated like a child and with a scientific dossier uh, as, uh, based on it I said In Japan, many more patients died with COVID. And I said, the vaccination doesn't work in 95% cases. And I gave a lot of answers and uh, they made a tribunal and I did uh, held speeches and did videos about vaccinations and I was told that the vaccination is uh, not more dangerous less dangerous than the disease 
and I was suspended, I was banned from work for a year between April 22 uh, to April 23. I organized a lot of uh, demonstrations and marches without a leader and without answer. We we were 7,000 people it was the center of Luxembourg was full and they had problems talking to me I am well known but They talked about me, mentioned me in the press, regularly reported about me in the press. I'm well known. And in 2023, this year, my I had to attend another tribunal, and it was the same judge and the same medical expert than two years ago. And the problem was that I was a criminal. And they didn't accept my point. They Three judges accepted and said to to say that this judge can't be for me and this medical expert can't be for me. <laughs> and on thirty first of March. I haven't won. They can't do anything about me. I haven't won. But the newspapers cannot say. Everyone knows they cannot do anything about me. So it's important that we see that the court understood <coughs> that we understand in Luxembourg the people the politicians <coughs> they see they know it and I think I'm optimistic, I'm positive, and I think it has made a change.
sehr gut. Ich habe eine Frage, wenn Sie sagen, dass man... I have a question. You say 7000 people demonstrated. Were these people from Luxembourg? Or were these people from elsewhere? We, uh, we talk to each other, we work together, and I'm also in contact with politicians, with uh, lawyers, and uh, the Greens, and Dr. Vodak is also known. So I'm not alone. And 7,000 people, it was the biggest um, march in Luxembourg. Because there aren't many demonstrations in Luxembourg, and that was the biggest in Luxembourg. But the scientists and medical professionals didn't want to talk to us and didn't want to, to uh, do a video with us. And that's interesting. Now, mm, there is royalty in Luxembourg. Um, do, are they critical? Or can you not see? Well, some politicians, they don't want to say, they don't want to admit that they talk to me. We asked we We, we asked the WHO in Geneva and we made phone calls and we asked How can it be checked in Geneva and uh, they said the national lab of, of Luxembourg <sighs> with the national laboratory in Luxembourg and they got the result and the tests were positive in Luxembourg and we asked and the second test and we heard that 80 percent of the results of the lab were, were negative. Eighty percent were negative when they were checked by the National Laboratory. Uh, 
So we had 80 patients and we sent it to political groups in Luxembourg and the press and we only got one answer and the group sent a letter to the health minister and an answer was received two months later and uh, she talked about the circumstances and then we tried to establish it in a court of law and you said to make sure the variety, the variants, the variants. So they wanted to do the sequencing of the virus, yes, yes. Okay. I want to do a conference, hold a conference with a professor and the people from the court because to send it to the doctors in Luxembourg to, to talk to the other side because I believe a lot of doctors, a lot of physicians are scared to speak out and I think it will be good for the future and I also want to hold a conference with the French and the Germans in Luxembourg I don't speak German well, but the Luxembourg people, that would be the best place to um, hold a conference in Europe. So 50,000 people in Luxembourg. That's a structure. No, no, in the city, in the city. Yes, I know. But this is, this is uh, very small. Uh, Luxembourg is relatively small. We are 600,000 uh, people. Yes, but uh, it's still many know each other. You know, it's not as anonymous uh, like in Germany, 80 million. And uh, if you, if it is noticed that from you know judges, doctors, politicians, etc., uh, know and talk and have doubts, then um, there is a tipping point. Uh, that could result where um, where where twenty percent of uh, the population or ten percent even uh, say, "Look, we no longer want to follow the whole thing, and it can change very quickly once a tipping point has been reached <coughs> uh, 
I'm sorry. No, now, in retrospect, when you say, okay, at the time, uh, the people protesting, but when we now notice that a lot of question marks are, and and a lot of people are doubtful, and a lot of, and that then a moment arises where many people in Luxembourg come out. If you're talking about 10%, you know, in in Germany this would be eight million people to mobilize all them, and if very much smaller uh, numbers of people. What do you think? I think we need a demonstration. I have n no words to describe it. We need people, all the people who are not satisfied, come together. It's not all the people who are dissatisfied, or old people, all the people who are, were dissatisfied. They started to after the fourth or fifth demonstration they became brutal, they sent police from Brussels to stop the demonstration. <coughs> when was that? When did it start? It was the day after the Black Bloc was there. And they threw eggs. And they didn't do anything to stop the demonstration. The police. And they did photographs and video video uh, uh, video videoed everything and then came police from Brussels and and, and they're the strongest in Europe and they came to us. In Luxembourg there was never a problem. How come that uh, Belgian police comes to Luxembourg? Is that normal? <laughs> yes, that's normal. But what is normal with uh, Mrs. van der Leyen? You can say that. It's not normal, no. It's a special group of uh, po 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 police. Uh, we can know that in France as well, everywhere in Europe, in fact. And tell us, are you uh, now still working as a doctor or working as a doctor again? And are you aware of any damage caused by uh, vaccinations? 
since April 15, many people come to me and I see problems with the head, with nerves and in 21 I did a lot of blood anal anal analyses <coughs> and all the people who came to me who were vaccinated I asked them for a blood sample to look for an inflammation and for thrombosis and uh, and CPK for myocarditis and the labs said regularly it's disastrous CRP was very high it's like a, it's like a pulmonary embolism and I sent them to hospital for checks and they said it's not normal and 30% of the 500 blood samples I took were not normal so more than a hundred CRP and more than CRP is a marker for inflammation and it always means there is an infection for with bacteria and it was very not normal <coughs> and the lab chief also said a virologist said it is normal CRP is uh, high but it's normal and there is nothing they, they don't, you don't need to worry and I, and I said it's not normal at all and at the same time I was satisfied with the results from Arno in Reutlingen who did an autopsy and the micro thromboses in the organs were everywhere you probably know that the lymphocytes were everywhere pancreas uh, liver and in the everywhere everywhere and everything was in inflamed it was like rheumatism and the CRP was totally realistic and the thromboses were everywhere in the body and 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 I ma made videos I was known in France and we talked about that in, in, in Germany and these analyses I have 500 samples that are analyzed and they were 
normal. Perhaps they were a bit tired or a bit off, but they had no problem. Whereas the others were not normal. May well, well, may well be that they're still normal, a bit tired, but that late onset damage occurs later down the line. With diabetes and glucose is very high, they have to urinate frequently, but they can live normally. However, if you have microthrombosis, you are a bit tired, but you can live normally. But the lab results are not normal. It's pathologic and it's specific. And, and did you do repeat tests and it disappeared again? I saw these patients regularly gave them medication against thrombosis, Pradaxa and some some else, and the people are well. The young people, 20, 25 years old, and these patients, they had anti-thrombosis medication and normally they have no problem. And after a year you check again, I've never seen that high, the, the, the CRPs that are that high. Now that you've seen it repeatedly a year later, did the people have any other uh, encounter any other other health uh, problems? I have the spike protein in the blood, and we gave medication for thrombosis, perhaps even only aspirin or evermectin not regularly and uh, I didn't see any problems. I had no people with myocard infarction <coughs> and ah, one thing, one patient he had she, she had bad COVID and was not vaccinated and one patient came he had 92,000 and they told me at the lab they've never seen anything like it it was impossible normally 92,000 means that they die and this patient had pulmonary embolism and I'm not a scientist I'm just a GP 
I did my work. I can't do more than that. The dossier that I've got, I've got has everything. But nobody wants to talk to me. Well, it's very interesting. Um, thank you. Can I uh, ask you, the people who uh, who came with more symptoms, were the, uh, was the blood count even more dramatic or was there no uh, complication? I no longer worked, and I no longer saw patients. It was not uh, easy. Some old people died, and other patients were still good. I just, uh, I encountered no problems, but I saw other patients who had the last vaccination one year ago, and uh, the levels are still high, more than 3,000 CRP, but they have no problem. You know, they don't have a huge problem. And let me say again, 3,000 before COVID would have been pulmonary embolism. That's astonishing. It's strange. We cannot derive any link between the change in the blood count and C-reactive protein CRP. you know, of which was high, meant that there was uh, was uh, pneumonia or kidney infection, fever. It's a huge problem. And now we just have elevated CRP. Um, and, and it's a lymphocyte. They are th everywhere throughout the body. And before the vaccination, we never saw this. And we can say it's a disease that's caused by the vaccination. Because we know that it didn't exist before. We have never seen patients with such a high CRP without a disease. It's strange that they aren't, you know, seriously ill or dead. Uh, how? It's a new disease caused by the um, vaccination. They have a reaction in the body, an immune reaction, and it's a proliferation of lymphocytes throughout the body. Yeah. 
Okay. That's enormous. That's uh, astonishing. Well, um, so, and how do you see, you say, okay, you are part of the network um, that is, uh, is being established in the French speaking. Well, well that's, that's very positive. And, and um, do you have um, established links to other French speaking Ultramare, uh, etc. Do you have uh, contact with other groups? I'm regularly in contact with CSC uh, and Andreas Pfeiffer, uh, the committee scientific um, that has a lot of doctors and specialists. And I regularly check the news and their uh, contact with Professor R, Professor Penan and other professors. Alexandra Arvencourt is a very good expert and we speak regularly. And they're all worried about the CRP. Many people haven't understood that it's a paradox. It's a paradox in of biology because vaccination causes small thromboses, small, not big ones, and they cause problems with the nerves, with with the lungs. Yes, I'm so sorry. My German is not as good as I would like it to be. No, no, sorry, that's a perfect, that's very interesting. And uh, we need to follow up on that. Perhaps it's better to talk to um, Andreas or with, with, with Robert and to give them my analyses. Okay, we established the contact. I think I'm the only doctor, uh, GP, who did that, to to do blood anal analyses with patients who had nothing as a control group. They were normal. And I did the analysis just to have a control group. Well, okay, that's something that we have to put together. It's very relevant. Fantastic, Dr. Ox. <coughs> Sorry, I, I, I have to uh, drop out now. I don't have much time. I was happy to talk to you. Yes, we as well. Thank you for this uh, view to Luxembourg and everything you did. Uh, we'll build up the network and I'm happy to uh, pass on contacts if you want to have looks uh, a better look into these details uh, very very much uh, thank you very much it's great it's great yes thank you thank you okay fascinating 
wherever you look, more and more information is emerging and networks are emerging. And I think it's very important that we bring all this together on a global scale because it gives us another view of things. And um, we have the um, motto today, I spy with my little eye. And we see that in France, they see other things than we do. We saw that here as well when we asked what went on in Bergamo. That was one of our first sessions. I think numbers two or three, where we did see the whole story is different from what we were told from the mainstream media. <coughs> and I do think that it is very important again and again to look everywhere to pick up the parts of the puzzle and put them together. Now, we would have had another guest, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to join us spontaneously. And uh, that means this takes us to the end of our session. We have one little video clip um, that we'd like to share now. It's been shown a number of times, uh, and uh, we'll have the translation into English for it. So those of you who weren't able to see it in German, understand it in German, we'll have it interpreted. And uh, well, we learned a lot in this session. And uh, there are more things to emerge and details to drill down into. And as always, I um, would like to ask for your donations. Uh, we depend on your financial support so that we can do our work and continue doing it. And I think it's important that we carry on with it. And uh, we want to, of course, uh, join the um, uh, crucial decision in Luxembourg, for, for example, or perhaps to um, get the final drop into the barrel and uh, Although things may look differently and the WHO is pushing forward, I think many people have understood what's going on. And in this sense, thank you very much for your support so far. And um, we hope that you'll stay with us and we'll meet again next week. Uh, I wish you a wonderful Friday night and a beautiful weekend. Thank you and goodbye. My last visit to Switzerland were uh, to Geneva because of the work at the WHO. And uh, so I'm happy to come back to Zurich. This is the former health minister in Germany. You invited me when I was a minister, um, but <clears throat> uh, I'm happy to come now, not being a minister anymore, discussing what has been going on. And a lot has been going on, actually. We have to take a decision. Who will I let into this sensible, sensitive situation? Dear Jens, dear Jens Spahn, this is your conscience. You talk like a bubble machine of the WEF Youth Terror Organization. Why did you let yourself be bought by Schwab uh, for Event 201 and Great Reset. Great Reset. Regret is not enough for your consciousness. Thank you for this contribution. We'll carry on with the discussion. <coughs>
Well, uh, just just ask your questions. I'm happy to answer. Uh, if there are questions, of course, we can answer them. I just want to just uh, give you one more thought, which is that we have to get the decision on the technology, because in the end, each car is technology. It's not an engine. Uh, it's just not wheels. Everything it gets together. Every kitchen appliance. Uh, so we have the question: uh, Ger German, American, or Chinese technology? That's the different questions. Dear Jens, dear Jens Spahn, this is your consciousness again. <clears throat> the result of your murderous sea measures. Millionaires, billionaires were exponentially empowered. Um, power, uh, poverty doubled, and the exploded debts are going to be put as a burden on your great-grandchildren. Your next job is climate war. Christian love is your propaganda song. Your remorse will not be enough. Your forgiveness. Well, we all have something to read, and you seem to be working for the energy to move things forward, are you? Well, the decision was taken in a time where sovereignty, independence is needed uh, for us. That is uh, the point. <clears throat> who betrayed us? Pseudo-democrats, who betrayed us? WF ideologist, who has got so much money? Those who destroy nature, humans, and the world. Anything else? Should I just carry on? Or what, what should I do? <clears throat> well, I can do anything. Okay, so we will have to decide, and I think that takes me to the last thought for today, which I have to present. Uh, I know some don't want to have to hear it yet, but we will have to take a decision. Because if everything changes, new times, then the question is whether everything can stay in Switzerland as it was. So that's the donut. They changed the donut. Dear Jens, dear Jens, this is your consciousness, your Christian consciousness. Did you forget it? You cannot serve two masters, God and Mammon. Unfortunately, you decided for Mammon. That fits the current party you're in. CDU, Capitalistic Dictatorship Union. You're forgiving 
is not enough for me, your consciousness. So the question is, how do we get things into a changing world? And I've talked about the EU agreement. A question from the audience. You talked about the dictators in China, for example. So uh, as a health minister, you have resigned uh, the death uh, uh, measures, uh, the death uh, toll has increased, poverty has uh, doubled. Uh, is that a good balance? You say you have to take quick decisions. Did you regret any of your decisions? Do you think Germany is a democratic country in this respect? Well, I think we can discuss that later. In the beginning, I uh, talked about Germany. You talked about Germany, that's right. Well, first on the question, democratic situation in Germany, clearly yes. It's a fully intact representative democracy. This is uh, something else. And fully intact also because of the representation that it does. and. I, well, you didn't say that. Even in newspaper comments, I read this, they don't want to get away from the decisions because they are intoxicated by their powers. They can finally do what they want to do. I can only tell you, well, I can't talk for everyone, but everybody I know, I don't know anybody who is politically responsible in Germany and in Europe who enjoyed this show and who wanted to do this longer than necessary according to the estimate of what we thought we would have to do. Of course you can discuss this uh, but I always try to make clear in the discussion that we do not announce any truth. That's different uh, to ideologically uh, autocratic system. The Communist Party only announces the truth. We don't do that. Uh, uh, representative democracy, direct democracy is balancing the opinions, listening to everybody and um, balancing the freedom of one with the health of somebody else. So this is not a question of wrong or right or truth or not truth. It's a question of balancing interests, arguments that are in favor of this uh, to protect the everybody else who's there and drop the wave and flatten the curve uh, which is our responsibility this is uh, a question of decision it's not a question of truth was the German people asked for this decision I haven't heard anything like that what the German people were asked in the person of their representatives. You seem to be having a problem with the concept of representative democracy. That's okay, I think we can deal with that. But representative democracy lives of the idea 
and the practical application that the will of the people, of the German people, that's what we have in the parliament building, that is expressed in the or by the elected sovereign who takes every single decision of the federal government has been uh, backed up by the federal parliament. So a short answer to your question is yes. So it's it's secret, isn't it? Well, so I think we should uh, discuss this. I'll stay around, and uh, otherwise he'll go and said he he's not allowed to talk here. So uh, uh, just text now. I was allowed to speak. So once I say I was allowed to speak here. Uh, so that is a progression, isn't it? I can answer the question on the contracts. The European Union closed contracts that didn't affect you in Switzerland, but yes, we did that. The EU did that with pharmaceutical country companies. Um, I was actively involved in the political process of this, not in the negotiations, yes, that's normal, that's normal, happens with contracts and there are parts in the contracts in many places, even if you have a maintenance contract um, that is uh, not tendered, that is tendered and not published. So freedom is also in the freedom of the companies and it's not publishing everything. So this is nothing uh, specific to the industry of in um, pharmaceutical companies and in pandemics. It's a normal procedure that every contract has clauses which are simply confidential and which are not published. So, um, as far as the producers of pharmaceuticals, I'll just give you an example on how quickly the mood can change. In the beginning of 21, um, there was a strong debate in EU and Germany why Israel and UK and US vaccinate much faster than we do. And these guys in Brussels, I don't want to use the proper word that, that I heard, weren't as clever as Israel was. Because what did they do? They completely assumed liability from the producers. At the same time, they told us, how well can you be so stupid not doing it at the same time, not doing that? Why did you actually leave more liability with the producers than the others did. Two years later, the debate has completely reverted. Now we are asked, why have you taken the liability and not left it with the, pro with the producers as in the past? The question is, why do we have to take liability? 
And now we are asked why we took parts of it. Why? Because that is normal procedure as well. This is something which you want to ensure for you and your region. We were in the race, in the global race for the vaccines. And then the question is what to do. And this is why I think we had a fair share of liability uh, between those who bought it and those who produced it. The question uh, for those who are vaccinated is not the topic. Who is liable? It is important that they have access to respective compensation. And this has been covered by German legislation passed in 2022. Okay, we'll move to the present now. We have a gift, and I have to say something here. This is the gift. It is a book, a nice book, and we all know that you like hiking very much, and we have got a hiking guide for you. 19 walks in Zurich. So that's nearly every street. And uh, that is something that we can give you here to enjoy the city. And I'll tell you why we gave you this book. There's uh, lots of things in this way. Just if the in case the electricity is down, you will be able to find your way and then maybe next time or the uh, next or the chancellor after that may come here to join us.